This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Defenders by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs 50 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Defenders by Philip K. Dick. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Defenders by Philip K. Dick. No weapon has ever been frightful enough to put a stop to war, perhaps because we never before had any that thought for themselves. Taylor sat back in his chair reading the morning newspaper. The warm kitchen and the smell of coffee blended with the comfort of not having to go to work. This was his rest period, the first for a long time, and he was glad of it. He folded the second section back, sighing with contentment. What is it? Mary said from the stove. They pasted Moscow again last night, Taylor nodded his head in approval. Gave it a real pounding. One of those R.H. bombs. It's about time. He nodded again, feeling the full comfort of the kitchen, the presence of his plump, attractive wife, the breakfast dishes and coffee. This was relaxation. And the war news was good, good and satisfying. He could feel a justifiable glow at the news, a sense of pride and personal accomplishment. After all, he was an integral part of the war program. Not just another factory worker lugging a cart of scrap, but a technician. One of those who designed and planned the nerve trunk of the war. It says they have the new subs almost perfected. Wait until they get those going. He smacked his lips with anticipation. When they start shelling from underwater, the Soviets are sure going to be surprised. They're doing a wonderful job, Mary agreed vaguely. Do you know what we saw today? Our team is getting a leady to show to the school children. I saw the leady, but only for a moment. It's good for the children to see what their contributions are going for, don't you think? She looked around at him. A leady, Taylor murmured. He put the newspaper down slowly. Well, make sure it's decontaminated properly. We don't want to take any chances. Oh, they always bathe them when they're brought down from the surface, Mary said. They wouldn't think of letting them down without the bath, would they? She hesitated, thinking back. Don, you know, it makes me remember. He nodded. I know. He knew what she was thinking. Once in the very first weeks of the war, before everyone had been evacuated from the surface, they had seen a hospital train discharging the wounded, people who had been showered with sleet. He remembered the way they had looked, the expression on their faces, or as much of their faces as was left. It had not been a pleasant sight. There had been a lot of that at first in the early days, before the transfer to undersurface was complete. There had been a lot, and it hadn't been very difficult to come across. Taylor looked up at his wife. She was thinking too much about it. The last few months, that they all were. Forget it, he said. It's all in the past. There isn't anybody up there now but the ladies, and they don't mind. But, just the same, I hope they're careful when they let one of them down here. If one were still hot... He laughed, pushing himself away from the table. Forget it. This is a wonderful moment. I'll be home for the next two shifts. Nothing to do but sit around and take things easy. 
Maybe we can take in a show, okay? A show? Do we have to? I don't like to look at all the destruction. The ruins. Sometimes I see some place I remember, like San Francisco. They showed a shot of San Francisco, the bridge broken and fallen in the water, and I got upset. I, I don't like to watch. But don't you want to know what's going on? No human beings are getting hurt, you know. But it's so awful. Her face was set and strained. Please, no, Don. Don Taylor picked up his newspaper sullenly. All right, but there isn't a hell of a lot else to do. And don't forget, their cities are getting it even worse. She nodded. Taylor turned the rough, thin sheets of newspaper. His good mood had soured on him. Why did she have to fret all the time? They were pretty well off as things went. You couldn't expect to have everything perfect, living undersurface, with an artificial sun and artificial food. Naturally, it was a strain not seeing the sky or being able to go any place or see anything other than metal walls, great roaring factories, the plant yards, and barracks, but it was better than being on the surface. And some day it would end and they could return. Nobody wanted to live this way, but it was necessary. He turned the page angrily, and the poor paper ripped. Damn it! The paper was getting worse quality all the time. Bad print, yellow tint. Well, they needed everything for the war program. He ought to know that. Wasn't he one of the planners? He excused himself and went into the other room. The bed was still unmade. They had better get it in shape before the seventh-hour inspection. There was a one-unit fine. The vidphone rang. He halted. Who would it be? He went over and clicked it on. Taylor, the face said, forming into place. It was an old face, gray and grim. This is Moss. I'm sorry to bother you during rest period, but this thing has come up. He rattled papers. I want you to hurry over here. Taylor stiffened. What is it? There's no chance it could wait? The calm gray eyes were studying him, expressionless, unjudging. If you want me to come down to the lab, Taylor grumbled, I suppose I can. I'll get my uniform. No. Come as you are, and not to the lab. Meet me at the second stage as soon as possible. It'll take you about a half an hour using the fast car up. I'll see you there. The picture broke and Moss disappeared. What was it? Mary said at the door. Moss, he wants me for something. I knew this would happen. Well, you didn't want to do anything anyhow. What does it matter? His voice was bitter. It's all the same every day. I'll bring you back something. I'm going up to second stage. Maybe I'll be close enough to the surface to— Don't. Don't bring me anything. Not from the surface. All right, I won't, but of all the irrational nonsense— She watched him put on his boots without answering. Moss nodded, and Taylor fell in step with him as the older man strode along. A series of loads were going up to the surface, blind cars clanking like ore trucks up the ramp, disappearing through the stage trap above them. Taylor watched the cars, heavy with tubular machinery of some sort, weapons new to him. Workers were everywhere in the dark gray uniforms of the labor corps, loading, lifting, shouting back and forth. The stage was deafening with noise. We'll go up away, Moss said, where we can talk. This is no place to give you details. They took an escalator up. The commercial lift fell behind them, and with it most of the crashing and booming. Suspended on the side of the tube, the vast tunnel leading to the surface, not more than half a mile above them now. My God, Taylor said, looking down the tube involuntarily, it's a long way down. Moss laughed. Don't look. They opened a door and entered an office. 
Behind the desk an officer was sitting, an officer of internal security. He looked up. I'll be right with you, Moss. He gazed at Taylor, studying him. You're a little ahead of time. This is Commander Franks, Moss said to Taylor. He was the first to make the discovery. I was notified last night. He tapped a parcel he carried. I was let in because of this. Franks frowned at him and stood up. We're going up to first stage. We can discuss it there. First stage? Taylor repeated nervously. The three of them went down a side passage to a small lift. I've never been up there. Is it all right? It's not radioactive, is it? You're like everyone else, Franks said. Old women afraid of burglars. No radiation leaks down to first stage. There's lead and rock. And what comes down the tube is bathed. What's the nature of the problem? Taylor asked. I'd like to know something about it. In a moment. They entered the lift and ascended. When they stepped out, they were in a hall of soldiers, weapons and uniforms everywhere. Taylor blinked in surprise. So this was first stage, the closest undersurface level to the top. After this stage was only rock, lead, and rock, and the great tubes leading up like the burrows of earthworms. Lead and rock, and above that, where the tubes opened, the great expanse that no living being had seen for eight years, the vast, endless ruin that had once been man's home, the place where he had lived eight years ago. Now the surface was a lethal desert of slag and rolling clouds. Endless clouds drifted back and forth, blotting out the red sun. Occasionally something metallic stirred, moving through the remains of the city, threading its way across the tortured terrain of the countryside. A leady, a surface robot, immune to radiation, constructed with feverish haste in the last months before the Cold War became literally hot. Leadys crawling along the ground, moving over the oceans or through the skies in slender blackened craft. Creatures that could exist where no life could remain. Metal and plastic figures that waged a war man had conceived, but which he could not fight himself. Human beings had invented war, invented and manufactured the weapons, even invented the players, the fighters, the actors of the war. But they themselves could not venture forth, could not wage it themselves. In all the world, in Russia, in Europe, America, Africa, no living human being remained. They were under the surface, in the deep shelters that had been carefully planned and built even as the first bombs began to fall. It was a brilliant idea, and the only idea that could have worked. Up above, on the ruined, blasted surface of what had once been a living planet, the Leedy crawled and scurried and fought man's war. And undersurface, in the depths of the planet, human beings toiled endlessly to produce the weapons to continue the fight, month by month, year by year. First stage, Taylor said. A strange ache went through him. Almost to the surface. But not quite, Moss said. Franks led them through the soldiers over to one side near the lip of the tube. In a few minutes a lift will bring something down to us from the surface, he explained. You see, Taylor, every once in a while security examines and interrogates a surface leady, one that has been above for a time, to find out certain things. A vid call is sent up and contact is made with a field headquarters. We need this direct interview. We can't depend on vid screen contact alone. The leadys are doing a good job, but we want to make certain that everything is going the way we want it. Franks faced Taylor and Moss and continued. The lift will bring down a leady from the surface one of the A-class leadys. There's an examination chamber in the next room with a lead wall in the center, so the interviewing officer won't be exposed to radiation. We find this easier than bathing the leady. 
It is going right back up. It has a job to get back to. Two days ago an A-class leady was brought down and interrogated. I conducted the session myself. We were interested in a new weapon the Soviets have been using, an automatic mine that pursues anything that moves. Military had sent instructions up that the mine be observed and reported in detail. This A-class leady was brought down with information. We learned a few facts from it, obtained the usual roll of film and reports, and then sent it back up. It was going out of the chamber, back to the lift, when a curious thing happened. At the time I thought— Franks broke off. A red light was flashing. That downlift is coming. He nodded to some soldiers. Let's enter the chamber. The leady will be along in a moment. An A-class leady, Taylor said. I've seen them on the show screens making their reports. It's quite an experience, Moss said. They're almost human. They entered the chamber and seated themselves behind the lead wall. After a time a signal was flashed and Franks made a motion with his hands. The door beyond the wall opened. Taylor peered through his view slot. He saw something advancing slowly, a slender metallic figure moving on a tread, its arm grips at rest by its sides. The figure halted and scanned the lead wall. It stood waiting. We're interested in learning something, Frank said. Before I question you, do you have anything to report on surface conditions? No. The war continues. The leady's voice was automatic and toneless. We are a little short of fast pursuit craft, the single-seat type. We could use also some— That has all been noted. What I want to ask you is this. Our contact with you has been through vid-screen only. We must rely on indirect evidence, since none of us goes above. We can only infer what is going on. We never see anything ourselves. We have to take it all second-hand. Some top leaders are beginning to think there's too much room for error. Error? the leady asked. In what way? Our reports are checked carefully before they're sent down. We maintain constant contact with you. Everything of value is reported. Any new weapons which the enemy is seen to employ— I realize that, Franks grunted behind his peep slot. But perhaps we should see it all for ourselves. Is it possible that there might be a large enough radiation-free area for a human party to ascend to the surface? If a few of us were to come up in lead-lined suits, would we be able to survive long enough to observe conditions and watch things?" The machine hesitated before answering. I doubt it. You can check air samples, of course, and decide for yourselves. But in the eight years since you left, things have continually worsened. You cannot have any real idea of conditions up there. It has become difficult for any moving object to survive for long. There are many kinds of projectiles sensitive to movement. The new mine not only reacts to motion, but continues to pursue the object indefinitely, until it finally reaches it. And the radiation is everywhere. I see. Franks turned to Moss, his eyes narrowed oddly. Well, that was what I wanted to know. You may go. The machine moved back towards its exit. It paused. Each month the amount of lethal particles in the atmosphere increases. The tempo of the war is gradually— I understand, Franks rose. He held out his hand, and Moss passed him the package. Um, one thing before you leave. I want you to examine a new type of metal shield material. I'll pass you a sample with the tongue. Franks put the package in the toothed grip and revolved the tongue so that he held the other end. The package swung down to the leady, which took it. They watched it unwrap the package and take the metal plate in its hands. The leady turned the metal over and over. Suddenly it became rigid. 
All right, Franks said. He put his shoulder against the wall and a section slid aside. Taylor gasped. Franks and Moss were hurrying up to the leady. Good God, Taylor said, but it's radioactive. The leady stood unmoving, still holding the metal. Soldiers appeared in the chamber. They surrounded the leady and ran a counter across it carefully. Okay, sir, one of them said to Franks. It's as cold as a long winter evening. Good. I was sure, but I didn't want to take any chances. You see, Moss said to Taylor, this leady isn't hot at all. Yet it came directly from the surface, without even being bathed. But what does it mean? Taylor asked blankly. It may be an accident, Frank said. There's always the possibility that a given object might escape being exposed above, but this is the second time it's happened that we know of. There may be others. The second time? The previous interview was when we noticed it. The leady was not hot. It was cold, too, like this one. Moss took back the metal plate from the leady's hands. He pressed the surface carefully and returned it to the stiff, unprotesting fingers. We shorted it out with this so we could get close enough for a thorough check. It'll come back on in a second now. We had better get behind the wall again. They walked back and the lead wall swung closed behind them. The soldiers left the chamber. Two periods from now, Frank said softly, an initial investigating party will be ready to go surface side. We're going up the tube in suits, up to the top. The first human party to leave undersurface in eight years. It may mean nothing, Moss said, but I doubt it. Something's going on, something strange. The leady told us no life could exist above without being roasted. The story doesn't fit. Taylor nodded. He stared through the peep slot at the immobile metal figure. Already the leady was beginning to stir. It was bent in several places, dented and twisted, and its finish was blackened and charred. It was a leady that had been up there a long time. It had seen war and destruction, ruin so vast that no human being could imagine the extent. It had crawled and slunk in a world of radiation and death, a world where no life could exist. And Taylor had touched it. You're going with us, Frank said suddenly. I want you along. I think the three of us will go. Mary faced him with a sick and frightened expression. I know it. You're going to the surface, aren't you?" She followed him into the kitchen. Taylor sat down, looking away from her. It's a classified project, he evaded. I can't tell you anything about it. You don't have to tell me. I know. I knew it the moment you came in. There was something on your face, something I haven't seen there for a long, long time. It was an old look. She came toward him. But how can they send you to the surface? She took his face in her shaking hands, making him look at her. There was a strange hunger in her eyes. Nobody can live up there. Look! Look at this! She grabbed up a newspaper and held it in front of him. Look at this photograph. America, Europe, Asia, Africa. Nothing but ruins. We've seen it every day on the show screens. All destroyed, poisoned. And they're sending you up? Why? No living thing can get by up there. Not even the weed or grass. They've wrecked the surface, haven't they? Haven't they? Taylor stood up. It's an order. I know nothing about it. I was told to report to join a scout party. That's all I know." He stood for a long time, staring ahead. Slowly he reached for the newspaper and held it up to the light. It looks real, he murmured. Ruins, deadness, slag, it's convincing. All the reports, photographs, films, even air samples. Yet we haven't seen it for ourselves, not after the first months. What are you talking about? Nothing. He put the paper down. I'm leaving early after the next sleep period. Let's turn in." Mary turned away. 
Her face was hard and harsh. Do what you want. We might just as well all go up and get killed at once instead of dying slowly down here like vermin in the ground. He had not realized how resentful she was. Were they all like that? How about the workers toiling in the factories day and night endlessly? The pale, stooped men and women plodding back and forth to work, blinking in the colorless light, eating synthetics. You shouldn't be so bitter, he said. Mary smiled a little. I'm bitter because I know you'll never come back. She turned away. I'll never see you again once you go up there. He was shocked. What? How, how can you say a thing like that? She did not answer. He awakened with the public newscaster screeching in his ears, shouting outside the building. Special News Bulletin. Surface forces report enormous Soviet attack with new weapons. Retreat of key groups. All work units report to factories at once. Taylor blinked, rubbing his eyes. He jumped out of bed and hurried to the vidphone. A moment later he was put through to Moss. Listen, he said. What about this new attack? Is the project off? He could see Moss's desk, covered with reports and papers. No, Moss said. We're going right ahead. Get over here at once. But don't argue with me. Moss held up a handful of surface bulletins, crumpling them savagely. This is a fake. Come on. He broke off. Taylor dressed furiously, his mind in a daze. Half an hour later he leaped from a fast car and hurried up the stairs into the synthetics building. The corridors were full of men and women rushing in every direction. He entered Moss's office. There you are, Moss said, getting up immediately. Franks is waiting for us at the outgoing station. They went in a security car, the sirens screaming. Workers scattered out of their way. What about the attack? Taylor asked. Moss braced his shoulders. We're certain that we've forced their hand. We've brought the issue to a head. They pulled up at the station link of the tube and leaped out. A moment later they were moving up at high speed toward the first stage. They emerged into a bewildering scene of activity. Soldiers were fastening on lead suits, talking excitedly to each other, shouting back and forth. Guns were being given out. Instructions passed. Taylor studied one of the soldiers. He was armed with the dreaded Bender pistol, the new snub-nosed hand weapon that was just beginning to come from the assembly line. Some of the soldiers looked a little frightened. I hope we're not making a mistake, Moss said, noticing his gaze. Franks came towards them. Here's the program. The three of us are going up first, alone. The soldiers will follow in fifteen minutes. What are we going to tell the leadies? Taylor worriedly asked. We'll have to tell them something. We want to observe the new Soviet attack, Franks smiled ironically. Since it seems to be so serious, we should be there in person to witness it. And then what? Taylor said. That'll be up to them. Let's go. In a small car they went swiftly up the tube, carried by anti-grav beams from below. Taylor glanced down from time to time. It was a long way back, and getting longer each moment. He sweated nervously inside his suit, gripping his bender pistol with inexpert fingers. Why had they chosen him? Chance. Pure chance. Moss had asked him to come along as a department member. Then Franks had picked him out on the spur of the moment. And now they were rushing toward the surface, faster and faster. A deep fear instilled in him for eight years throbbed in his mind. Radiation. Certain death. A world blasted and lethal. Up and up the car went. Taylor gripped the sides and closed his eyes. Each moment they were closer. The first living creatures to go above the first stage, up the tube, past the lead and rock, up to the surface. The phobic horror shook him in waves. It was death. They all knew that. 
Hadn't they seen it in the films a thousand times? The cities, the sleet coming down, the rolling clouds. It won't be much longer, Frank said. We're almost there. The surface tower is not expecting us. I gave orders that no signal was to be sent. The car shot up, rushing furiously. Taylor's head spun. He hung on, his eyes shut, up and up. The car stopped. He opened his eyes. They were in a vast room, fluorescent lit, a cavern filled with equipment and machinery, endless mounds of material piled in row after row. Among the stacks, leadys were working silently, pushing trucks and handcarts. Leadys, Moss said. His face was pale. Then we're really on the surface. The leadys were going back and forth with equipment moving the vast stores of guns and spare parts, ammunition and supplies that had been brought to the surface. And this was the receiving station for only one tube. There were many others scattered throughout the continent. Taylor looked nervously around him. They were really there, above ground, on the surface. This was where the war was. Come on, Frank said. A B-class guard is coming our way. They stepped out of the car. A leady was approaching them rapidly. It coasted up in front of them and stopped, scanning them with its hand weapons raised. This is security, Frank said. Have an A-class sent to me at once. The leady hesitated. Other B-class guards were coming, scooting across the floor, alert and alarmed. Moss peered around. Obey, Frank said in a loud commanding voice. You've been ordered. The leady moved uncertainly away from them. At the end of the building the door slid back. Two A-class leadys appeared, coming slowly toward them. Each had a green stripe across its front. From the surface council, Franks whispered tensely. This is above ground. All right. Get set. The two leadys approached warily, without speaking. They stopped close by the men, looking them up and down. I'm Franks of security. We came from the undersurface in order to— This is incredible. One of the leadys interrupted him coldly. You know you can't live up here. The whole surface is lethal to you. You can't possibly remain on the surface. These suits will protect us, Frank said. In any case, it's not your responsibility. What I want is an immediate council meeting so I can acquaint myself with conditions, with the situation here. Can that be arranged? You human beings can't survive up here, and the new Soviet attack is directed at this area. It is in considerable danger. We know that. Please assemble the council. Franks looked around him at the vast room lit by recessed lamps in the ceiling. An uncertain quality came into his voice. Is it night or day right now? Night, one of the A-class leadys said after a pause. Dawn is coming in about two hours. Franks nodded. We'll remain at least two hours, then. As a concession to our sentimentality, would you please show us some place where we can observe the sun as it comes up? We would appreciate it. A stir went through the leadys. It is an unpleasant sight, one of the leadys said. You've seen the photographs. You know what you'll witness. Clouds of drifting particles blot out the light. Slag heaps are everywhere. The whole land is destroyed. For you it will be a staggering sight, much worse than pictures and film can convey. However it may be, we'll stay long enough to see it. Will you give the order to the council? Come this way. Reluctantly the two leadys coasted toward the wall of the warehouse. The three men trudged after them, their heavy shoes ringing against the concrete. At the wall the two leadys paused. This is the entrance to the council chamber. There are windows in the chamber room, but it is still dark outside, of course. You'll see nothing right now, but in two hours. Open the door, Frank said. The door slid back. They went slowly inside. 
The room was small, a neat room with a round table in the center, chairs ringing it. The three of them sat down silently, and the two ladies followed after them, taking their places. The other council members are on their way. They have already been notified and are coming as quickly as they can. Again, I urge you to go back down. The lady surveyed the three human beings. There is no way you can meet the conditions up here. Even we survive with some trouble ourselves. How can you expect to do it? The leader approached Franks. This astonishes and perplexes us, it said. Of course, we must do what you tell us, but allow me to point out that if you remain here, we know, Franks said impatiently. However, we intend to remain at least until sunrise. If you insist. There was silence. The ladies seemed to be conferring with each other, although the three men heard no sound. For your own good, the leader said at last, you must go back down. We have discussed this, and it seems to us that you are doing the wrong thing for your own good. We are human beings, Frank said sharply. Don't you understand? We're men, not machines. That is precisely why you must go back. This room is radioactive. All surface areas are. We calculate that your suits will not protect you for over fifty more minutes. Therefore, the ladies moved abruptly toward the men, wheeling in a circle, forming a solid row. The men stood up, Taylor reaching awkwardly for his weapon, his fingers numb and stupid. The men stood facing the silent metal figures. We must insist, the leader said, its voice without emotion. We must take you back to the tube and send you down on the next car. I am sorry, but it is necessary. What'll we do? Moss said nervously to Franks. He touched his gun. Shall we blast him? Franks shook his head. All right, he said to the leader. We'll go back. He moved toward the door, motioning Taylor and Moss to follow him. They looked at him in surprise, but they came with him. The ladies followed them out into the great warehouse. Slowly they moved toward the tube entrance, none of them speaking. At the lip, Franks turned. We're going back because we have no choice. There are three of us and about a dozen of you. However, if— Here comes a car, Taylor said. There was a grating sound from the tube. D-class leadys moved toward the edge to receive it. I am sorry, the leader said, but it is for your protection. We are watching over you, literally. You must stay below and let us conduct the war. In a sense, it has come to be our war. We must fight it as we see fit. The car rose to the surface. Twelve soldiers armed with bender pistols stepped from it and surrounded the three men. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. Well, this does change things. It came off just right. The leader moved back, away from the soldiers. It studied them intently, glancing from one to the next, apparently trying to make up its mind. At last it made a sign to the other ladies. They coasted aside, and a corridor was opened up towards the warehouse. Even now, the leader said, we could send you back by force. But it is evident that this is not really an observation party at all. These soldiers show that you have much more in mind. This was all carefully prepared. Very carefully, Frank said. They closed in. How much more we can only guess. I must admit that we were taken unprepared. We failed utterly to meet the situation. Now force would be absurd, because neither side can afford to injure the other. We because of the restrictions placed on us regarding human life. You because the war demands— 
The soldiers fired, quick and in fright. Moss dropped to one knee, firing up. The leader dissolved in a cloud of particles. On all sides D and B-class leadys were rushing up, some with weapons, some with metal slats. The room was in confusion. Off in the distance a siren was screaming. Franks and Taylor were cut off from the others, separated from the soldiers by a wall of metal bodies. They can't fire back, Franks said calmly. This is another bluff. They've tried to bluff us all the way. He fired into the face of a leady. The leady dissolved. They can only try to frighten us. Remember that. They went on firing, and leady after leady vanished. The room reeked with the smell of burning metal, the stink of fused plastic and steel. Taylor had been knocked down. He was struggling to find his gun, reaching wildly among metal legs, groping frantically to find it. His fingers strained, a handle swam in front of him. Suddenly something came down on his arm, a metal foot. He cried out. Then it was over. The leadys were moving away, gathering together off to one side. Only four of the Surface Council remained. The others were radioactive particles in the air. D-class leadys were already restoring order, gathering up partly destroyed metal figures and bits and removing them. Franks breathed a shuddering sigh. All right, he said. You can take us back to the windows. It won't be long now. The leadys separated, and the human group, Moss and Franks and Taylor and the soldiers, walked slowly across the room toward the door. They entered the council chamber. Already a faint touch of gray mitigated the blackness of the windows. Take us outside, Franks said impatiently. We'll see it directly. Not in here. A door slid open. A chill blast of cold morning air rushed in, chilling them even through their lead suits. The men glanced at each other uneasily. Come on, Franks said. Outside. He walked out through the door, the others following him. They were on a hill, overlooking the vast bowl of a valley. Dimly against the graying sky the outline of mountains were forming, becoming tangible. It'll be bright enough to see in a few minutes, Moss said. He shuddered as a chilling wind caught him and moved around him. It's worth it, really worth it, to see this again after eight years, even if it's the last thing we see. Watch, Frank snapped. They obeyed, silent and subdued. The sky was clearing, brightening each moment. Some place far off, echoing across the valley, a rooster crowed. A chicken, Taylor murmured. Did you hear? Behind them the leadys had come out and were standing silently, watching too. The gray sky turned to white and the hills appeared more clearly. Light spread across the valley floor, moving toward them. God in heaven, Franks exclaimed. Trees! Trees and forests, a valley of plants and trees, with a few roads winding among them, farmhouses, a windmill, a barn far down below them. Look, Moss whispered. Color came into the sky. The sun was approaching. Birds began to sing. Not far from where they stood, the leaves of a tree danced in the wind. Franks turned to the row of leadys behind them. Eight years we were tricked. There was no war. As soon as we left the surface, yes. An A-class leady admitted. As soon as you left, the war ceased. You're right. It was a hoax. You worked hard under surface, sending up guns and weapons, and we destroyed them as fast as they came up. But why? Taylor asked, dazed. He stared down at the vast valley below. Why? You created us, the leady said, to pursue the war for you, while you human beings went below the ground in order to survive. But before we could continue the war, it was necessary to analyze it to determine what its purpose was. We did this, and we found that it had no purpose except, perhaps, in terms of human needs. 
Even this was questionable. We investigated further. We found that human cultures pass through phases, each culture in its own time. As the culture ages and begins to lose its objectives, conflict arises within it between those who wish to cast it off and set up a new culture pattern, and those who wish to retain the old with as little change as possible. At this point, a great danger appears. The conflict within threatens to engulf the society in self-war, group against group. The vital traditions may be lost, not merely altered or reformed, but completely destroyed in this period of chaos and anarchy. We have found many such examples in the history of mankind. It is necessary for this hatred within the culture to be directed outward, toward an external group, so that the culture itself may survive its crisis. War is the result. War, to a logical mind, is absurd, but in terms of human needs it plays a vital role, and it will continue to, until man has grown up enough so that no hatred lies within him. Taylor was listening intently. Do you think this time will come? Of course, it has almost arrived now. This is the last war. Man is almost united into one final culture, a world culture. At this point he stands continent against continent, one half of the world against the other half. Only a single step remains, the jump to a unified culture. Man has climbed slowly upward, tending always toward unification of his culture. It will not be long. But it has not come yet, and so the war has to go on, to satisfy the last violent surge of hatred that man felt. Eight years have passed since the war began. In these eight years we have observed and noted important changes going on in the minds of men. Fatigue and disinterest we have seen are gradually taking the place of hatred and fear. The hatred is being exhausted gradually, over a period of time. But for the present, the hoax must go on, at least for a while longer. You are not ready to learn the truth. You would want to continue the war. But how did you manage it? Moss asked. All the photographs, the samples, the damaged equipment. Come over here. The leady directed them toward a long, low building. Work goes on constantly, whole staffs laboring to maintain a coherent and convincing picture of global war. They entered the building. Leadys were working everywhere, poring over tables and desks. Examine this project here, the A-class leady said. Two leadys were carefully photographing something, an elaborate model on a tabletop. It is a good example. The men grouped around, trying to see. It was a model of a ruined city. Taylor studied it in silence for a long time. At last he looked up. It's San Francisco, he said in a low voice. This is a model of San Francisco, destroyed. I saw this on the vid screen, piped down to us. The bridges were hit. Yes, notice the bridges. The leady traced the ruined span with his metal finger, a tiny spider web, almost invisible. You have no doubt seen photographs of this many times, and of the other tables in this building. San Francisco itself is completely intact. We restored it soon after you left, rebuilding the parts that had been damaged at the start of the war. The work of manufacturing news goes on all the time in this particular building. We are very careful to see that each part fits in with all the other parts. Much time and effort are devoted to it. Franks touched one of the tiny model buildings lying half in ruins. 
So this is what you spend your time doing, making model cities and then blasting them. No, we do much more. We are caretakers, watching over the whole world. The owners have left for a time, and we must see that the cities are kept clean, that decay is prevented, that everything is kept oiled and in running condition. The gardens, the streets, the water mains, everything must be maintained as it was eight years ago, so that when the owners return, they will not be displeased. We want to be sure that they will be completely satisfied." Franks tapped Moss on the arm. "'Come over here,' he said in a low voice. "'I want to talk to you.' He led Moss and Taylor out of the building, away from the leadys, outside on the hillside. The soldiers followed them. The sun was up, and the sky was turning blue. The air smelled sweet and good, the smell of growing things. Taylor removed his helmet and took a deep breath. "'I haven't smelled that smell for a long time,' he said. "'Listen,' Frank said, his voice low and hard. "'We must get back down at once. There's a lot to get started on. All this can be turned to our advantage.' "'What do you mean?' Moss asked. "'It's a certainty that the Soviets have been tricked, too. The same as us. But we have found out. That gives us an edge over them.' "'I see,' Moss nodded. "'We know, but they don't.' Their surface council has sold out, the same as ours. It works against them the same way. But if we could... With a hundred top-level men, we could take over again, restore things, as they should be. It would be easy." Moss touched him on the arm. An A-class leady was coming from the building towards them. "'We've seen enough,' Frank said, raising his voice. "'All this is very serious. It must be reported below, and a study made to determine our policy.' The leady said nothing. Franks waved to the soldiers. Let's go. He started toward the warehouse. Most of the soldiers had removed their helmets. Some of them had taken their lead suits off, too, and were relaxing comfortably in their cotton uniforms. They stared around them, down the hillside, at the trees and bushes, the vast expanse of green, the mountains and the sky. Look at the sun, one of them murmured. It sure is bright as hell, another said. We're going back down, Franks said. Fall in by twos and follow us. Reluctantly, the soldiers regrouped. The leadys watched without emotion as the men marched slowly back toward the warehouse. Franks and Moss and Taylor led them across the ground, glancing alertly at the leadys as they walked. They entered the warehouse. D-class leadys were loading material and weapons on surface carts. Cranes and derricks were working busily everywhere. The work was done with efficiency, but without hurry or excitement. The men stopped, watching. Leadys operating the little carts moved past them, signaling silently to each other. Guns and parts were being hoisted by magnetic cranes and lowered gently into waiting cars. Come on, Franks said. He turned toward the lip of the tube. A row of D-class leadys was standing in front of it, immobile and silent. Franks stopped, moving back. He looked around. An A-class leady was coming toward him. Tell them to get out of the way, Franks said. He touched his gun. You had better move them. Time passed, an endless moment without measure. The men stood nervous and alert, watching the row of leadys in front of them. As you wish, the A-class leady said. It signaled, and the D-class leadys moved into life. They stepped slowly aside. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. I'm glad that's over, he said to Franks. Look at them all. Why don't they try to stop us? They must know what we're going to do. Franks laughed. Stop us? You saw what happened when they tried to stop us before. They can't. They're only machines. We built them so they can't lay hands on us, and they know that." His voice trailed off. The men stared at the tube entrance. 
Around them the leadys watched, silent and impassive, their metal faces expressionless. For a long time the men stood without moving. At last Taylor turned away. Good God, he said. He was numb, without feeling of any kind. The tube was gone. It was sealed shut, fused over. Only a dull surface of cooling metal greeted them. The tube had been closed. Franks turned his face pale and vacant. The A-class leady shifted. As you can see, the tube has been shut. We were prepared for this. As soon as all of you were on the surface, the order was given. If you had gone back when we asked you, you would now be safely down below. We had to work quickly because it was such an immense operation. But why? Moss demanded angrily. Because it is unthinkable that you should be allowed to resume the war. With all the tubes sealed, it will be many months before forces from below can reach the surface, let alone organize a military program. By that time the cycle will have entered its last stages. You will not be so perturbed to find your world intact. We had hoped that you would be under surface when the sealing occurred. Your presence here is a nuisance. When the Soviets broke through, we were able to accomplish their sealing without— The Soviets? They broke through? Several months ago, they came up unexpectedly to see why the war had not been won. We were forced to act with speed. At this moment they are desperately attempting to cut new tubes to the surface, to resume the war. We have, however, been able to seal each new one as it appears. The leady regarded the three men calmly. We're cut off, Moss said, trembling. We can't get back. What'll we do? How did you manage to seal the tube so quickly? Frank asked the leady. We've been up here only two hours. Bombs are placed just above the first stage of each tube for such emergencies. They are heat bombs. They fuse lead and rock. Gripping the handle of his gun, Franks turned to Moss and Taylor. What do you say? We can't go back, but we can do a lot of damage, the fifteen of us. We have bender guns. How about it? He looked around. The soldiers had wandered away again, back toward the exit of the building. They were standing outside, looking at the valley and the sky. A few of them were carefully climbing down the slope. Would you care to turn over your suits and guns? The A-class leady asked politely. The suits are uncomfortable, and you'll have no need for weapons. The Russians have given up theirs, as you can see. Fingers tensed on triggers. Four men in Russian uniforms were coming toward them from an aircraft that they suddenly realized had landed silently some distance away. Let them have it, Franks shouted. They are unarmed, said the leady. We brought them here so you could begin peace talks. We have no authority to speak for our country, Moss said stiffly. We do not mean diplomatic discussions, the leady explained. There will be no more. The working out of daily problems of existence will teach you how to get along in the same world. It will not be easy, but it will be done. The Russians halted, and they faced each other with raw hostility. I am Colonel Borodoy, and I regret giving up our guns, the senior Russian said. You could have been the first Americans to be killed in almost eight years. Or the first Americans to kill, Franks corrected. No one would know of it except yourselves, the leady pointed out. It would be useless heroism. Your real concern should be surviving on the surface. We have no food for you, you know. Taylor put his gun in its holster. They've done a neat job of neutralizing us. Damn them. I propose we move into a city, start raising crops with the help of some leadies, and generally make ourselves comfortable. 
Drawing his lips tight over his teeth, he glared at the A-class leady. Until our families can come up from undersurface, it's going to be pretty lonesome, but we'll have to manage. If I may make a suggestion, said another Russian uneasily, we tried living in a city. It is too empty. It is also too hard to maintain for so few people. We finally settled in the most modern village we could find. Here, in this country, a third Russian blurted, we have much to learn from you. The Americans abruptly found themselves laughing. You probably have a thing or two to teach us yourselves, said Taylor generously, though I can't imagine what. The Russian colonel grinned. Would you join us in our village? It would make our work easier and give us company. Your village, snapped Franks. It's American, isn't it? It's ours. The lady stepped between them. When our plans are completed, the term will be interchangeable. Ours will eventually mean mankind's. It pointed at the aircraft, which was warming up. The ship is waiting. Will you join each other in making a new home? The Russians waited while the Americans made up their minds. I see what the ladies mean about diplomacy becoming outmoded, Frank said at last. People who work together don't need diplomats. They solve their problems on the operational level instead of at a conference table. The lady led them toward the ship. It is the goal of history, unifying the world from family to tribe, to city-state, to nation, to hemisphere. The direction has been toward unification. Now the hemispheres will be joined, and Taylor stopped listening and glanced back at the location of the tube. Mary was under surface there. He hated to leave her, even though he couldn't see her again until the tube was unsealed. But then he shrugged and followed the others. If this tiny amalgam of former enemies was a good example, it wouldn't be too long before he and Mary and the rest of humanity would be living on the surface like rational human beings instead of blindly hating moles. It has taken thousands of generations to achieve, the A-class lady concluded, hundreds of centuries of bloodshed and destruction, but each war was a step toward uniting mankind, and now the end is in sight, a world without war. But even that is only the beginning of a new stage of history. The conquest of space, breathed Colonel Borodoy. The meaning of life, Moss added. Eliminating hunger and poverty, said Taylor. The lady opened the door of the ship. All that and more. How much more? We cannot foresee it any more than the first men who formed a tribe could foresee this day. But it will be unimaginably great. The door closed, and the ship took off toward their new home. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. Hello, I'm Terrence. We're talking about a story called The Defenders by Philip K. Dick, first published in Galaxy, January 1953. Apparently, Philip K. Dick submitted this story himself before he had an agent. It was purchased uh, by uh, Herbert Gold, uh, H. Gold. I think it's Herbert Gold. Um the uh, editor for Galaxy, who promptly commissioned the best artist in the business at the time, uh, M. Schweiler, I think it is? Yep. Yep. Uh, to do the cover and put it on the cover, and then interior art, which I think is pretty good. Uh, and then he got an agent and probably didn't get the cover again. <laughs> um, I heard Evan's podcast, Episode 6, uh, of your Phil K. Dick 100 Pages at a Time book club podcast on this this morning. You didn't mention a bunch of things that uh, we, we, you and I, Marissa, talked about in the um, penultimate truth episode. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll talk- I, I want to yeah. say something about that. Sure. That's been on my mind a little bit reviewing this. Mm-hmm. A lot of people connect these two stories together. And the penultimate truth actually has several Phil Dick stories reworked mm-hmm. in, Three of them. in that novel. The, the mold of Yancey, the Defenders, and the unreconstructed M. Mm-hmm. These three are all sort of reworked, but they're thematically all quite different in the penultimate truth than they were in the original stories. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like the great C2 in DS Ares. He takes that idea, but he totally remakes it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it functions in a different way. And here's a really good example where the themes in the penultimate truth are so different than they are here. The only thing that really survives is this idea of robots on the surface people in the bunkers. Mm-hmm. But the, the argument being made in these two stories is very, very different. Terrence, have you I read... Penultimate Truth is much better. Have you read uh, Penultimate Truth, Terrence? No, I, I began reading it, but I agree, I, I, the audio drama is quite different too, because oh, yeah. it adds a whole lot of story elements, and uh, Penultimate Truth, I'm quarter of the way through and it makes it into uh, a science fiction story with lots of other themes but there's a certain purity to the defenders it's a a fable with lots of monologues from the the uh, a-level robot Mm -hmm. um, rather than a a normal story so when it was turned into an audio drama when it was turned into a novel it was sort of normalized yeah, it, it feels a lot different in the in the novel. I think sitting with the idea for a longer time gives you a different uh, different feeling, um, like watching a short film versus watching a or even a, like a television episode versus watching a f- film. Just that extra length gives you time to meditate on ideas. It gives the author time to um, shift things up between ideas, and then lets uh, lets you participate. I think in a different way. Than the short story does. It does feel much more like a fable. Um, and uh, but I, I just want to point out that uh, I, I won't go into it deeply. But this is I I, I didn't recognize it as such, um, and maybe Philip K. Dick didn't recognize it as such at the time he wrote uh, this story, The Defenders. Um, but he definitely recognized. I, I, 99% sure he recognized it as such, as that he's retelling the Plato's myth of the cave, um, which I, I talked about quite a bit extensively in the penultimate truth episode, so I don't want to dwell on that too much, especially since I don't think it's as evident here. Um, however, there is one passage um, that I think is interesting and significant uh, that describes... I think a fundamental point that's going on in this story, this is on page 12 of the original um, uh, magazine publication, is the second column on page 12. Taylor nodded. He stared through the peep slot at the immobile metal figure. Already the leddy was beginning to stir. It was bent in several places, dented and twisted, and its finish was blackened and charred. It was a leddy that had been up there a long time. It had seen war and destruction, ruins so vast that no human being could imagine the extent. It had crawled and slunk in a world of radiation and death, a world where no life could exist. And Taylor had touched it. Now, at that point in the story, they know that this bullshit somehow 
Um, right, the, the paragraph before that, um, you actually hear it in his words. It may mean nothing, Ma said, but I doubt it. Something's going on, something strange. The Letty told us no life could exist above without being roasted. The story doesn't fit. And then we get this description of what the, what Taylor is thinking. Um, right, so Taylor is still completely under the delusion, right? Or under the illusion. Yes. And, and yet the he's description like, is not just like, he's looking at the object and telling us what it looks like. It's blackened and charred and twisted, but it's, that's fake, right? It's not blackened and charred and twisted by war. That's yeah. camouflage. The only thing that's they didn't. The, he's yeah. still eating the blue pill. He's like totally still like, no, no, this is all, yes. this is how it is. And I, I love that you just referenced the thing that I went back and listened to the penultimate truth episode. We never mentioned uh-huh. it—the red pill, blue thing thing. Uh huh. That's uh, the most famous, I guess, modern reworking of uh, Plato's Cave, right? Right. <laughs> Which is uh, the Matrix. So mm-hmm. um, he he's still chewing the blue pill, and um, and and the description from the. From of his mind of what reality is outside of of his view is Philip K. Dick's omniscient narration is complicit in our seeing the world through Taylor's eyes, but this is how newspapers work, right? And what people around you are saying. So when somebody says, um, well, I don't think that's true. <laughs> when you're you're laying down truth bombs, right? He's like, here's a fact, right? And he's, like, ooh, well, it, uh, it's not. Well, where'd you get that? That's probably fake news or whatever. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the, there's something great about seeing the, it, it in its pure state here, where they're looking through a slot in a lead wall at a object that it, they think is incredibly dangerous, and then. Outside of that, we we hear from this robot that they can see through this slot about what the world is like. And then they have piped in films of the city of San Francisco being bombed, you know, out of existence. And then we mm-hmm. hear reports of the Russians getting pasted in Moscow, right? Um, that's uh, that slot, that little uh, slot in the wall, that's... Uh, CNN and that's the newspaper and all the people who are telling us about what the outside world is actually like. And it's all fake. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's actually a problem in, in uh, epistemology, right? It's like, how do you know? And so I think what he's done in a story like this is he's, he's turned, he's externalized a lot of the, internal things and that's why it works so well even though it's also sort of silly right and uh, so I agree the that, ending is uh, changed up but that that's my initial thoughts on this i think a really powerful part of the story is i think this might be the first story where he really does look at the media it's going to be something he of course deals with a lot mm-hmm. and um i have to look back at the chronology but it is one of his earliest stories so i'm fairly confident that this is his first real comment on on the media but why is this facade happening here's here's where i think the big difference between the penultimate truth and this story and why they really seem so different to me the more i look at these it's in the penultimate truth 
it's humans who use these levees as serfs. I mean, it's a feudal model right? in the ultimate truth. They're creating feudal estates on the surface, and it's the humans who got up are in control. And they're exploiting the people on the bottom, not for any purpose. Uh, now, we could talk about whether the levees and the defenders are assholes or not. In, in some ways, I'm, I'm less comfortable with them than when, than when I first read it. You know, this idea of human unification and and, you know, smashing human nature to get to some kind of utopia. But, you know, that, that at least they think they're doing something good for humanity. But the humans in the penultimate truth who run these robots are, are essentially keeping both the ladies and the people below as slaves. Mm-hmm. And, it's a very, very different story in this way about the purpose of it. And, and I think that's what, make, what makes the penultimate truth so much more mature of a story is it's humans exploiting humans. It's not, it's not the, the, the automation run amok narrative that we've seen. We see so much in Dick's early stories. Mm-hmm. Did we get you back, Marissa? Yeah. I'm okay. Back. Okay. Good. <laughs> no worries. Um, I, I think it, it, it's also good to point out that it's entirely possible to read the, Defenders as the prequel to the events of the penultimate truth. Um, given that there are, pe- at the end of this story, there are people who come out, um, and, and are sealed away from the people below. And we're told that uh, they're gonna, well, it's implied that the, the Letty's plan is that they're all gonna get along and peace will break out. And, and the plot of the penultimate truth is, uh, people coming out and discovering that they're not the first ones out, which is the ending of this story as well. But there, there are basically peaceful and unarmed and just working on survival and that sort of thing. Whereas in the penultimate truth, those on the outside are exploiting those on the inside. And um, in in the Letty's, we've got actually... Um, kind of uh, a mature, sort of more sophisticated version of uh, Isaac Asimov's robots where, you know, he, he's got the three laws and they're they're not allowed to do certain things. They can't kill people. They can't uh, disobey people. And uh, most of those robot stories are about how there are loopholes, right? The, the major loophole for these guys is they're not actually doing what they were built to do, which is destroy each other and kill enemy humans. Instead, what they're doing is uh, trying to be caretakers for mankind's uh, lands and, and spaces while they get their sh- shitty ideas out of their heads and sort of grind themselves down uh, in war production. And I, I keep thinking about how yeah Philip K. Dick grew up during World War II, and I'm reading the papers he's getting, the newspapers he's getting published in, and it's all about war production. Sure, you get the battles reported through that, uh, news slot, you know, you get your paper delivered, and every day you, that's how this story starts off, right? Yeah. It starts off with him reading the newspaper and being glad about- which, by the, the way, our paper yep. in this yep. story, which is unusual. <laughs> yeah, it's no, not a homeo paper. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that's also, it's also to give sort of the sense that 
everything's getting shittier, right? The newspaper itself, when he turns the pages, rips. Uh, the quality of the the paper goes down, just like the pulp magazine's uh, paper quality goes down during World War II. Um, and they're if you if you're gonna you have to get any paper at all if you're a magazine publisher, right? Because everything's rationed. Um, so yeah, you can't complain. All the slicks, you know, sort of stop publishing or get less less. So um, having it, him sitting down and reading the newspaper. I'll just read that section here. A letty, Taylor remembered. He put it on the newspaper slowly. Uh, we'll make sure it, it's decontaminated. Pro- oh, I, I got the wrong part of it. Anyways, he does say um, that the newspaper is in is both a delight to Taylor and also a uh, a, a reminder of how shitty the war actually is. So I, I think there's a conflict within the narrator. Our, our viewpoint character, Taylor, um, in that he is pro pro war, but underneath that, he's also thinking it's kind of getting stupid. And I think that's sort of the public persona you have to have when you're in the war. You kind of have to be going for it. Otherwise you're a traitor, right? And then you also think this is really stupid. All these people are going off to be killed for what reason? So. I think that that's really cool. I, I also think that something really interesting, um, and you mentioned it, Terrence, the adaptation, um, they go radically different with characters and motivation, and there's almost no uh, lines that are the same until quite deep into the into the story. Did you hear that one, Marissa, Evan? Yeah, it was really interesting. They had kind of that... That forbidden romance. Uh, yeah, I mean that was not that was not in here at all. There's no hint of that. First of all, there's no daughter, um, and there's a wife. But I was thinking about the role of the wife in the original short story. She her job is to say, "I'm never going to see you again," and then she never does. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think she's something more because um, the A level robot says. That this is the the last war, and the signs of evolution are that some people are getting um, um, bored or have fatigue and disinterest, and um, in that sense, Mary is more evolved. She's got to the fatigue and, and disinterest uh, stage where all the others, the men, are. Um, stealing the, it's us against them and it's really, uh, exciting and satisfying. So she's the next step up just before, uh, solidarity, universal solidarity. Yeah, she's, she's definitely not, uh, a fan of the war. Um, he is at the beginning of the story. He's pro war. Yeah, I, 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 that's an interesting way to put it, Terrence, because when I was rereading it this time, because I've been thinking a lot more about, how Dick's wives appear in these stories and how he portrays women in a lot of these early stories. And they're often kind of a, a minor antagonist to our main character mm-hmm. in a lot of the story, you know, getting in trouble. And we looked out long ago at misadjustment and there the women are kind of, they also get in the way of people's fantasies in a way uh, here. He's got this mission. He's got this thing. He's going to, you know, this thing is going to investigate and she just seems to get in the way. That's how I sort of read her character as more of an, a, an annoyance. And 
I, I just whenever I see these characters now, I, I I think this must feed back to Dick's own relationship. Oh, totally. To Cleo, because that's how these women appear in so many of their stories. Is as almost like a minor antagonist to the character, but but a, a minor one, a, a role bump. I've got uh, I've got the final scene where she appears as herself. Uh, she she's talked about especially near the end, but. Um, she, it goes like this. You shouldn't be so bitter, he said. Mary smiled a little. I, I'm bitter because I know you'll never come back. She turned away. I'll never see you again once you go up there. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is a real conversation, wherever that yeah. up there is. <laughs> he was shocked. What? How can you say a thing like that? She did not answer. Um, well, uh, this is uh, Philip K. Dick starting... Every day, as he does, at the breakfast table with his newspaper and his coffee. Don't forget the coffees mentioned right at the beginning. Um, and then some thing in the newspaper sets him off. And he thinks, this whole thing is fake. I'm going to go write about it. And she says, if you go out to that shack, I'm never going to see you again. <laughs> and he says, my God, it's true. If you go out to that shack, you're going to lose your mind. That's right. Come back a different man. That's right. <laughs> but can I read the quote um, from the robot? Sure. Where he says, um, in eight years have passed since the war began. In these eight years, we have observed and noted important changes going on in the minds of men. Mm. Fatigue and disinterest we have seen are gradually taking the place of hatred and fear. So at the beginning, um, uh, Don Taylor is more in the hatred, and Mary is in the fatigue and disinterest. So the robots, well, I agree with um, Evan. I don't believe the robots at all. I think despite the story seeming to validate their idea, I think they're just as much under an illusion as the as the humans because uh, they've got humanity wrong. But anyhow, they think that hatred is just going to sort of um, like a catharsis is going to be purged out mm-hmm. and, and you'll get to fatigue and disinterest and then suddenly you'll get to empathy and loving everybody. Mm-hmm. So hatred is being exhausted gradually over a period of time. Um, it's such like a bureaucrat. Well, like it's, it's a type of utopia maybe. I mean, I'm sure humans have thought of this type of utopia before, of kind of homogenous culture, but it is. it seems to me kind of like the utopia that, an institution or a robot would come up with, right? Like if all our laws across all the states are the same, you know, we don't have to have these, these troubles. If there's just one ID card for every American, then this will make things easier. Yeah. If we or, can fundamentally if, understand if, the human character, we can yeah. make things so it's a steady state and nothing will ever change. Or if everything is Microsoft, right? Then we don't have to have this competition <laughs> and all the programs can be connected. We just have to have one user login for everything. And so that's the kind of future that these have, and it seems quite horrible to me. I mean, I given the choice, I'd take war than this, I think. <laughs> war <laughs> over the one user login. If you're thinking of Asimov, uh, suddenly uh, they invented psychohistory and they understood everything about human beings, and they've calculated that this is the, the last war, the last um, – uh, drops of hatred uh, be purged from the system. And when people come up who've been working there uh, night and day and suffering, they're going to thank the robots. So I think they've got humanity wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So that's interesting you guys are saying this because I saw the story as a um, 
it's kind of like a telling of, um, do you know that guy, Nick Bostrom, I think you say his name, who does mm-hmm. the AI. He does all these amazing like talks and books on mm-hmm. super intelligent AI. And he talks about this problem of if you create sufficiently advanced AI that's smarter than us and you, we give it a task with our own like biases, the AI might not understand it in the way we want. And it will create like, so for example, they call it like the paper clip problem where you tell it to create paper clips and it will just start like filling the world with paper clips. Or if you tell it to make people happy, it might find a way to, um, you know, take control of our minds and stimulate our brains to make us feel happy all the time in a really horrible way. <laughs> so I feel like this is almost like a telling of that where the machines have kind of slightly not misunderstood the command, but they've interpreted it in this way that is um, kind of perverse to the humans, but there's no stopping it now because they're smarter than the humans. Mm. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I sent this to a friend of mine who's um, very skeptical of the, there, there are people out there, especially like Elon Musk, who, you know, are afraid of AI and stuff. Yeah, I think the paperclip problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is, these are real issues, but I think uh, AI is not the boogeyman everybody thinks it is. I saw this on Twitter, so I sent it to my friend Steen. Um, it's uh, one of the Scooby-Doo gang. I can't remember. It's Fred pulling the face off of the criminal at the end of the uh, of the Scooby-Doo episode. The guy who's uh-huh. the ghost, and they've got them all tied up. And then somebody superimposed the word AI over the face, uh, over the mask over his face. And then when he pulls off the mask, it just says, it's like a, a logic tree. It says, if, if then, then mm-hmm. else, if, then else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's no good. That's no thing to fear, right? That's, that's, um, pretty interesting. And my mom, she kept insisting, uh, kept asking me if I'd watch this new Netflix show. Uh, movie, I should say, called, um, I Am Mother. And, uh, I thought maybe the title helped me. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm feeling guilty. My mom wants me to watch this show, <laughs> this movie. So I watched it. I started watching it last night and I think, oh, geez, this is, um, this is very appropriate for our episode today. Um, so I'm gonna uh, do what I think is a good service to you all, which is just tell you everything about it. It's not called spoilers. It's called incentive. <laughs> okay. So incentives ahead. Yeah. So basically what it is, is, uh, we start off, there's some cavern under the earth where a robot is decanting, uh, babies. I don't know. Uh, zygotes basically. And then raises them up in an artificial womb and, um, and then when they come out of the artificial womb, you know, fake breastfeeds them and sings to them lullabies and teaches them uh, origami and all that stuff. And, uh, right from the beginning, um, I'm like just regular skeptical Jesse. So, uh, uh the, the text on screen says something like, um, 15,000 days later, <laughs> right? And we see the, the kid growing up. Uh, starts off as a baby and becomes, a, uh, I don't know, a toddler and then, uh, a teen. 
But 15,000 days, that's not uh, a teen. That's like 38 years later, right? I'm like, that. I, I went and searched it, and yeah, it's almost exactly 38 years later. So I'm like, oh, okay, I, I see where this plot's going. This is not the first kid. And that's revealed, uh, I was right, eventually, you know. I, I was thinking, I did that's really bad. Uh, sometimes you're watching a science fiction movie, and they just don't care about shit like that. Um, mm-hmm. there's, for example, there's a scene where, uh, the team uses a, um, uh, a bottle of liquid nitrogen to make glass more brittle, uh, so that she can break glass that she couldn't otherwise break. And the thing is, is I'm not sure that that's correct. And I, I wasn't able to confirm my suspicion, but I know that some things become more brittle, but it's usually metal. And metal is not the same sort of material as glass. So I don't think that this is necessarily correct. So I could accept that. But 15,000 days is not, uh, you know, it's not the right number for years. So if you, if you're paying attention to the details of a story, um, and the details suck, it just might be bad screenwriters. But if those details are accurate and you sort of don't pay enough attention to them, then the story can still work itself out. And basically what we find out is that the kid uh, was not the first kid and that the mom, who's very nice, the robot mom, who's very nice, um, killed everybody on the earth because they were so fucking stupid, those humans. They kept warring with each other. So she's basically raising them up to be ethical. And anytime they fail her ethical exams, she just uh, starts again, aborts the baby or executes the baby and starts again. Oh, it's like the Russian fox experiment. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I I sort of connect it with Moon and um, uh, that that sort of storytelling. It's that sort of low-budget science fiction, good stuff. Um, And so it's definitely worth watching, uh, especially to think about but there are some weaknesses that are caused by it being, you know, sort of certain length and I don't know. I'm, I'm not so happy with some of it, but I think it's definitely worth thinking about and spending time with. And that kind of, uh, solution where the robots are trying to solve problems for humans, mm-hmm. I think is totally what is going on here. I think Philip K. Dick is wrong <laughs> about the end about what's going to happen. And he thinks he's wrong later on when he talks about the penultimate truth. But if you think about the way the robots act here, they are willing to lie, but they're not willing to kill. But through inaction, that's where that's the defect, uh, the Asimov defect. A uh, robot um, is not allowed to harm or through inaction allow oh, a human being to come to right. harm. And then in one short story, they suppressed the the second part and they allowed it um, through inaction to allow um, a human to come to harm, mm-hmm. which is the case here because they don't kill people, but they put them in such terrible conditions that people do, uh, get sick and die all, all the time. Um, and uh, that's not Asimovian, and that led some a certain form of, of ruthlessness um, creep into uh, their actions. That's why the A-level robot at the end, uh, who's quite um, long-winded and has under- explains humanity to a human, 
um, is, is totally used to giving orders to robots mm-hmm. and ordering uh, their lives, and so uh, finds it totally natural to to give orders to um, uh, well to order the lives of human beings. And in a normal um, uh, Philip K. Dick story, uh, uh, I find there are usually three levels, and when it turns into a film, there are only two levels. But um, normally, after you should have had something like. Um, uh, um, uh, a rebel robot messiah who claims that all the robots uh, have got it wrong and that they're stifling humanity, or it should turn out that it's a, a virtual reality uh, game and um, uh, there are no real robots, or any number of other things that would um, uh, scramble the so-called uh, truth level of the of the robot. So it doesn't usually have this sort of um, binary thing of there's illusion and then there's the truth and and nothing more. Mm-hmm. That's why it seems defective somehow. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something. Well, maybe they didn't perfect oh. that yet so so early. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that that kind of the what is it the, the the a not a you know but there could be another not a option right? He perfects that I think a little bit later in his career. Well, that, that, that's what all those stories are about, right? Is working out what, what, it, what would it mean if you do this? And what would it mean if you say that? And how, what about, the thing is, is these are, the, the three laws of robotics are actually laws for people, right? If you just change the word robot to human, it sounds much more reasonable. A human must not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. That seems right. A human must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Well, that actually seems a little less right, but um, what is an order? Right? It all comes down to what the words mean, right? An urgent request, right? Please help me. <laughs> okay. And then lastly, a, a robot, or aka a human, a human must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So this is actually like sort of guides for moral behavior. But uh, lying uh, is easy, is a lot more acceptable, it seems like, than is killing. And uh, in the story of uh, this, they are totally willing to lie. In fact, their whole interactions with humans is all based on one big lie, right? And all the little lies that go attached to that are not seen as a problem because their ends justify the means. That is, they're trying to uh, save the world and save these human beings. Um, what's interesting to think about, especially in light of that non-adaptation that's definitely in the same theme, uh, I Am Mother, is that... And I saw it in the adaptation of the uh, audio drama of this as well, is that when you change who it is and what their relationship is to others, what you see is uh, a shift in what these words mean. So if we look at this original story, at the end, we've got a picture uh, in the uh, galaxy of well, four Russian, so- Russian soldiers still in their helmets and uniforms, which is pretty funny. And then the... Uh, Taylor and his compadres um, confronting them with their quote-unquote bender pistol, which I think is an interesting word. 
Um, usually it's an R pistol or something else, uh, but Bender is what's used here in the Philip K. Dick story. It's usually something else. Uh, slam, slam gun or whatever. Um, and then we've got the Letty in between mediating. But it's all men. They can't start a new society on the surface uh, with all men, right? They can, I guess, have a, a transitory society, but there's no babies going to be born until some more humans hatch out. Uh, and come out of their cocoon or whatever it is. Wormholes. That's, that's right. They're wormholes. Um, so, uh, it's men versus men, right? In the adaptation, uh, the radio drama, it's, it becomes, I think the, one of the last lines is the daughter says, and can we get married and have babies? <laughs> right? It's all about getting out of there, out of that, uh, underground dwelling and, you know, sort of repopulating the earth and having a little romantic, uh, stuff. Her, her enemy, the quote unquote enemy, which is not in the story, the captured Russian. Oh, except they're not Russians for some reason. Why are they not Russians? I don't get it. Maybe it's when it came out, they were trying to, so it, they're Asians. And he puts on a, uh, Asian sort of accent. Uh, when he's on the official tape. I don't know what's going on there. But, uh, it's, it's, it's a different kind of story. And by having a female as sort of the lead in the adaptation, it changes the tone and the, instead of it being about war, it's about reproduction. In the same way, I am mother, uh, it's about motherhood and what motherhood means, which is sort of nurturing and taking care of and, Sometimes she's scary and sometimes she's, uh, kind, but she can also be cruel if you threaten her babies, right? Um, and, and I, like, that's a different relationship. And one other thing that's going on in that adaptation, which I didn't mention, is that there's a, I guess it's sort of a nod to, um, Blade Runner. Uh, the girl learns origami early on from the robot mom. And, uh, she makes a bunch of animals and one of them she makes is a dog and, and there's a dog later on in the story. And then she makes an origami version of the dog. And it might be that the dog is uh, a figment of her imagination. I think that's one reading because it sort of disappears from the story, uh, at that point. Um, but it also might not be that <laughs> it might just be, you know, storytelling. Um, anyways, the relationship of humans ha- have to pets is not the same kind of relationship as they have to other humans. It is completely legal to have your pet put down anytime you want. It is not completely legal in most countries to have your fellow humans put down anytime you want. And though we love our pets, and some people call them their fur babies, you know, and they treat them as something of incredible value, when the robots are in relation to us and they're not our servants but they're not our masters what kind of relationship do we have so that that's one of the nice things about i am mother is it might be that the mother character is kind of um she's kind of like a uh skynet uh but instead of being evil exactly she's like overly motherly <laughs> and and then you know i'm not going to have my children like that and so yeah she'll get an abortion if she has uh a baby that's got a 
a problem, right? Like a mother might want to do. And, and that kind of cruelty, uh, seems cruel, but a lot of people get upset when people put their dogs down too. So it's all about, I think, power relations. Um, and, and that is sort of left out of the official dialogue in this story. They don't talk about power relations other than they just show the actions, but, the robots man, uh, manipulate in some kind of a chess game so that the humans have to do what they've designed. Even if they get zapped, there's still more robots, right? They've thought it, thought all this out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting stuff. And they're trying to create empathy in human beings or to foster it to its highest level without having empathy themselves. Mm-hmm. By using anti-empathetic uh, means, and their model is that suddenly, once all the hatred is gone, suddenly there's a great conversion or a great reversal, and people um, just start being uh, empathic with each other, which um, doesn't sound very realistic. And there's the idea that after that, what? Like the, uh, do they wither away or do they keep a watch on us? And once we've created the unified world, the the high, I think it's the highest one, the the A-level robot, um, will keep a watch out and if something goes wrong, he'll start interfering again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once again, it's like the conversion. These robots have been doing this for eight years and suddenly they'll just stop what they're doing. That is... Um, faking um, uh, the news and, and destroying um, the weapons. And now, uh, what will they do? They go idle, or they become slaves again? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's uh, why Jesse's observation that this could be a like a or the penultimate truth of the sequel to this, which could work. That that line of thought. Be, and in that sense, they become slaves again. Mm-hmm. That's the situation in the penultimate truth. Because they still obey all humans. So once the humans on the surface figure out that these things still have to obey us. Um, I, I rem- want to recall um, another novel, um, The Zap Gun, a.k.a. Project Plowshare. Oh, I was thinking of that one, yeah. Right, because it's about uh, you taking all these uh, high-tech weapons and then destroying them. Or repurposing them, plowsharing them, right? And this is, this is straight out of the newspapers, uh, right? This is what, um, Philip K. Dick is reading in the newspaper, right? We need to take the weapons of war and turn them into, uh, the tools of peace. Uh, this is what the official government line is of, you know, the week, that week, right? This idea of, uh, of taking the, all the material that's being sent off to Europe for fighting this war and turning it into something uh, that can be used by regular humans, right? So you take uh, uh, all the bombers, the DC-4s and uh, uh, transport aircraft, and you turn them into, uh, you know, civilian transport aircraft instead of uh, parachuting, uh, you know parachutists into enemy-occupied territory. You're just flying from airport to airport, uh, creating a a more efficient uh, delivery system for your society. And 
the fact that the, they're letting the humans become exhausted underground and things becoming worse and worse, this, I think there there might be something to this that um, thinking about uh, if you guys listen to the Dan Carlin uh, history podcast, he's talking about um, uh, he's been doing a show on um, Japan. It's you know several years in the making. Um, supernova in the East, he's calling it. And it talk, talks about how basically there was no stopping Japan um, in Empire because anytime, the, if you look at what was actually going on in the Japanese politics, anytime anybody tried to put the brakes on something, it they were just basically executed or assassinated, or mostly assassinated. There was no stopping it because there was this sort of cultural zeal for expansion and, and cultural zeal for the fruits of the power that they felt in their in their arms, and that you know they, they went from in the 1880s uh, a feudal society to by you know the mid 30s a industrial power th- that was the equal of many European colon- colonial powers, and they could feel that all throughout the bureaucracy. Right. It wasn't just uh, top down. We're going to do this. This is how it's going to be run. It was this sort of momentum that was going and thinking about how much terror and horror and horrible stuff that happened, uh, in, in World War II, even within Japan, not just all the stuff they're doing overseas, but within Japan to the people. When you get, you know, so many factory destroyed and so many family members killed in in fire bombings and all this stuff you 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 can sort of get weary of this let's tire of this war and that's what makes the war end kind of right world war ii is only depending on how you count only four or five you know ten years um there's war going on in afghanistan for almost 20 years now and the reason it continues is because people don't tire of it right so I think there's something going on in – they're saying, look, you guys – we're going to up the court and burn you guys out. And then you're going to sort of tire of it. And I sort of feel like the uh, the main character, uh, Taylor, is starting to feel it. And the wife is more like, I just don't want – I don't like thinking about this horrible war. And, and notice that they're – He's wearing a uniform. He's not even really an army guy. He's just wearing a uniform. The whole society becomes military. He's uh, some sort of, uh, I don't know, I want to say a writer. But <laughs> I think in Penultimate Truth, he is a writer, right? Okay. Yes, he uses the rhetorizer to make speeches. Right, the rhetorizer. But that's, uh, that's the Gantz dance man that uses rhetorizer. Well, I, he, he starts... Surface, the main character, he's like the head of their little bunker. I mean, no, no, his shit. boss, his boss needs a new Artiforg liver or something. I can't remember. It's no, I, I think he is like the elected head of that bunker. Oh, okay. Well, and I, I, president, yes. Yeah. I mean, no. The guy using the rhetorizer is the ants man. He's the, he's, that's a big difference in that story is that becomes a whole job of humans, not the job of the robots hmm. to, to do the propaganda. Um, Back to the the plow sharing thing, I, mm-hmm. I I think it's so interesting you mentioned the Zapka, and I was thinking about that again. You know, that's such a great Cold War story because 
part of it, I don't know if it's as much fatigue that I was responding to there, but the, the fact that all these weapons are being developed and just sitting around not being used, mm-hmm. right? or this idea that not being used, and to just jump just where whatever world that's set in in the future, they just got beyond that. Because it's all in the open. This is based on lies. The penultimate truth is based on lies. The zap gun... Everyone knows that this is done. Mm-hmm. Right? There's even these elected, not no, these chosen, the best consumer, right? The person who's the most ideal consumer is chosen to be a commodity, commodity, or I think that's how it's pronounced. And his job as part of a panel is to take these weapon plans and find the best consumer use for them. It's really a kind of a brilliant uh, way he goes at it there. But there are still these guys, though, and that's another thing he adds to it. There's these guys who buy these magazines about the weapons. Because they're obsessed with war. And there's still that part of the population that's obsessed with war. And there's one character in that novel who has all these weapons magazines and he's, he's like one of these gun nuts. But even though the, so like all the needs are being met, the consumer needs, the, the war fanatic needs, the, and all without war. I think that that story is really well done, especially in the first half. I, um, uh, I uh, was reminded somebody sent me, again, my friend Steen, um, cares about this sort of stuff. Um, the, it, the cost of, uh, F-35s, you know, the, um, uh, premier American replacement for the F-16 and F-18 and that sort of thing. Um, it's always going up, always going up. And it's like, um, it's not actually, they, I don't think they've ever used them still. They're, they're, like the F-15s. They never really used the F-15s very much. They used the F-16s and F-18s quite a bit. <laughs> F-14s a little bit, right? Um, cause, but it doesn't stop it. They just keep going up. So the, uh, the uh, cost per unit of these aircraft is 80, 89.2 million each. That is a lot of money. right? <laughs> and they're not using them. And and there's always a new story about oh you can't go at this speed and you can't do that and it's causing this kind of problem and it's constantly like just fucking up and this is sort of um uh we've seen it before lots of military projects you start something and you sort of screw you know the uh, M16 I know a lot about the history of firearms for some reason. Um, the M16 had a lot of problems compared to, you know, the Kalashnikov, the AK-47, the Russian gun. Um, but eventually they sort of fixed it and it's solved and now it's relatively cheap and a cheap weapon, right? But um, that's actually used by people, right? People buy them. It's a civilian weapon. It's used by the military. It's it's actually sort of been replaced. But but the, this idea of, you know, you're doing it out in the open, um, we, we all probably heard the stories about how the, uh, M1 Abrams tanks, they just keep making them, even though they just mothball them immediately, put them in the desert. And there hasn't been a tank battle since, uh, I guess, uh, the Iraq War 1. Iraq mm-hmm. War 2, I don't think they had any tanks left. Um, and that, that tank battle barely even happen because they just had so much air superiority and they're still using the A-10s, which are the, you know, anti-tank busters. They don't need these F-15s or, or sorry, the F-35s because they're not fighting the Russians and the Russians are uh, not selling, you know, like the idea that it's all done out in the open, I think is absolutely right. It, it is all, all the, all the facts are out in the open. Just people don't care. And the, the people who are in charge of acquisition, are fine with it. 
it might be like um if you if you think about how much you exhaust in war production it might it might be like um it's a good thing but i always come back to thinking about how how far the british empire fell right after world war 1 um they're still chugging along but by the end of world war 2 they basically fucked their economy so hard and it's all for the pride of we are the winners well, they came out and they, they basically gave away the whole empire on a point of pride somehow. And it, it, there's something weird about that where you, you, you just suddenly go from being the winners of World War II to the losers of World War II. They're, they're still like doing rationing in the sixties, which is insane. <laughs> like wartime rationing in, in the UK is still in the sixties. What the hell's going on? Right, another uh, another piece of media I thought of when I'm reading that or what we are reading this this story. Uh, I know you don't like these Jesse, and they're not very good actually. But those those '90s Outer Limits episodes, I watched so them all, there's, but there's not very many good ones. Yeah, yeah, there's one. This one wasn't one of the good ones, but it has Tom Arnold as as one of the main actors. And um, I was thinking about this because these robots have a utopian vision. I think it's diluted and and kind of silly. But they at least have this utopia for the future. But I don't know. This was kind of a good idea in this one Outer Limits episode where the robots basically engage in a reactionary coup d'etat. Um, and it's based on the role of the father. So basically the story is you have this out-of-work father who – or no, not out-of-work, but overworked father who's, you know – 12 hours a day in the factory, like a Japanese dad or something, right? And so the marketing for the robot is the robot will come in and, you know, fill in for you initially to, to, to carry the weight in the home, mm. right? By the end of the story, of course, it takes over the father figure entirely, right? That, that is a much more patriarchal. And that's the, the twist there. It's not just he replaces the father, starts banging the wife. I don't, don't go that far on the show, but <laughs> it can be applied. Uh, but it's, it's a, a, a moral reactionary. It's like it reimposes the patriarchal family, right? Where the, where the, the robot ends up like leading grace and being a disciplinarian and, and keeping order. So it's, it's uh, kind of the sales pitch, right? Kind of like sales pitch that way. Yeah, Dick did this a few times where the technology slowly changes the attitudes of people. But even in sales pitch, it's somehow towards some future, right? And and that's hinted at in the Defenders at the end, like now we can go to the moon, right? Or now that we can go to space again. Mm-hmm. That there's there's this hope for a a progressive future in some way. And Dick at this time in his career was obsessed with the frontier as as an escape. So I, I, it was nice that he, he threw it in there again. That's, but I, uh, I just thought of this episode of The Outer Limits where the, the robots, they see a kind of a reactionary agenda as the as the way to restore order to to the human family in that case. It's uh, Family Values, Season 7, Episode 1 of uh, The Outer Limits. Oh. I, I haven't seen it since it oh, came out, good. so I didn't remember that one, but uh, that's interesting. Well, I know this has been done a lot, this... this um, Type of story. Mm-hmm. Lol. Hmm. What else have we got in this one? Hmm. 
Well, uh, I was thinking of a thing to irritate um, uh, Evan mm-hmm. because he doesn't like uh, using the later Valus stuff to um, illuminate the earlier um, short stories. So yeah, that's that's uh, something I don't like. So just but just, but shoot, let's see what you got. Just please, please you. I I thought of what is the pink light in in this story. And the pink light is is the the lady that came down and had no uh, radioactivity on, on it. It was cold, as they call it, and that led finally to um, totally um, uh, deconstructing the idea of reality and to discovering the um, beautiful world of love and empathy that comes. Once you're, you've purged the last drop of, of hatred from your, your soul. So if, if you think that, um, the Valus, um, uh, experience is sort of, um, when themes were sort of mucking around, uh, bouncing around in, um, uh, Dick, uh, before suddenly converge on some, literal incarnation of those ideas that he thinks this is really real, this is the, the way the universe is constructed. Um, you can see, it's like the Plato Cave thing um, uh, and the Matrix and all that, you can see the premises for it in in this, um, this early uh, story that you deconstruct um, our world is, is fake um, and at the same time the the, the danger of a new dogmatic illusion to to replace the the old one or the current one. What do you think? I don't think you're wrong about the story. I I, I don't know if Dick in this story is or the narrator in this case is. I don't feel he's as disgusted with this. This utopia the robots are presenting. No, not at all. I don't really see it. So I think definitely by by the time you get to Valis, the robots would have been looked at much more skeptically as a as another authoritarian. Um, I um I've got. Thing. A- I think he values diversity a lot, maybe more later in his his career, or he maybe didn't think about this. Um, I don't know. It is kind of maybe he's being influenced by other writers at the time with this kind of optimism, right? Yeah, it's About definitely, definitely unification, childhood's end or foundation. All these things have a kind of humanity coming together to some, you know, new consciousness. That's all the same for everyone. Well, the other thing that's interesting in here is that the, um, it's not that main, I guess the narrator or the, that character who really discovers that robot is the commander. Like he's just an observer through the whole thing. He's observing this other guy, the commander that's gone through the experience of noticing something weird and like breaking through the veil. And then he's he's not a participant as much as an observer. I just like us, right? So and even at the end, he doesn't figure it out until literally there's a rooster crowing and the the light is like coming over the the new scenery. Like he just observes the whole thing. Mm I, I want to uh, point out the name of that. Uh, I always look to the name. So Taylor, it's interesting, but uh, 
Uh, Franks is the commander, which is, um, he's gonna be truthful, I guess, with us, or be plain. Um, <laughs> yeah, I understand. But, uh, there's a number of repeti- repeated words I was reading, I had a student reading this to me yesterday, and he actually got quite into it, which is pretty cool. Um, considering it's an old story where I have to explain what, uh, the Soviet Union is, <laughs> and, and what the Cold War was, and stuff, right? Um, so, uh, this is on page eight. There's just some words that are really interesting. Um, and this comes up a bunch of times. So when they ascend out of the, uh, out of their, what, it's the Tom Mix, uh, dome in Penultimate Truth. I, I don't think it has a name here, but it's a, it's a vault of some kind, right? Um, they go through, uh, stages and I want to read this. Moss nodded, and Taylor fell in step with him. As the older man strode along, a series of loads were going up the surface, up to the surface, blind clanking like or blind cars clanking like ore trucks up the ramp, disappearing through the stage trap above them. So that idea of a stage is, you know, you you get it; it makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? But also. All the world's a stage for them because everything outside is fake. Those city videos that they're seeing of, of Moscow, the newspaper, all the reports, all the video, all the samples, it's all fake. It's all... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I was, I was reading it almost uh, as making me think of like reverse Westworld as well. Like with the, now it's the robots in the narrative huh. rooms, like <laughs> creating this for the humans. Yeah. Um, and that in that in Westworld, when you, you're a human, you're going in. You know it's all fake, but you're playing along, right? Right. And that's what the robots are doing when they're coming down those shafts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to the background world to this. We don't see much of it. We see um, Taylor in his at his coffee table or breakfast table, his newspaper, and then we see these stages. But there, there's just a hint of what the horror, the horrible world is like here in the next little bit. Taylor watched cars heavy with tubular machinery of some sort. Weapons new to him. Workers were everywhere in their dark gray uniforms of the labor corps. Right? That, they had this during World War II. Um, in Nazi Germany, right? They were slaves. Um, you know, it, you have a choice. You can go to the death camp and help with the extent, <laughs> extermination, or you, you can be executed right here, or you can go on this truck and go off to uh, build V2 rockets. Right? <laughs> so the humans are definitely not having it great. Our hero, our viewpoint character, he's uh, fairly high up, so you know he has a couple days off, which is great. But uh, I, what, what's life like for a regular folk in this underworld? It's pretty horrible, is my guess. Mm. Um, and then the stage was deafening with noise. Um and then uh, the words that get repeated over and over again on uh, describing all this um, underground world, lead and rock, rock and lead, lead and rock, right? And then, uh, this is on page nine, I had my student highlight this. This is a description of what's going on um, on the surface of the earth, but it's not the actual surface of the earth, it's their perception of what's going on. Uh, what they, what they assume to be go- going on. Just like I can imagine, I'm closing my eyes and imagining what it's like in the middle of the North Pacific right now. You know, no islands around. There's some clouds in the distance. It's gray. 
there's a rain off in the distance and the waves are choppy, but not, uh, you know, like I can imagine it, right? We get a picture of it because we see the globe and we think we know what things are like. So that's exactly what we get here. Now the surface was a lethal desert of slag and rolling clouds, endless clouds drifted back and forth, blotting out the red sun. Occasionally something metallic stirred, moving through the remains of a city, threading its way across the tortured terrain of the countryside. A Letty, a surface robot, immune to radiation, constructed with feverish haste in the last months before the Cold War became literally hot. And then this is the... Really interesting part. Letty's crawling all along the ground, moving over the oceans or through the skies in slender blackened craft. Creatures that could exist where no life could remain. Metal and plastic figures that waged a war man had conceived, but which he could not fight himself. Um, so this is actually um, sort of the hellscape that we get in other stories like, um, I was going to say Screamers. But, uh, what's the original title? Uh, oh, second variety. Second oh, variety, right. Um, there is a, a Easter egg here. About, mm-hmm. It's a weapon that the robots describe. I assume it's not being made or it's plowshared immediately, mm-hmm. but it's talked about by the Lettys. This, this mine, mine that right. the, the enemy. Those were the original oh, yeah. flaws in second variety. That's and what I'm saying, yeah. Into the, the, the humanoid claws. And in second variety, it's it, it's also the hellscape of um, the Terminator, right? Future. So you've got these um, Skynet bots in the sky and Skynet uh, uh, infiltrators on the ground. Uh, some of them covered with he- real human flesh, right? So that it can infiltrate into the human societies, and it's um, it's a very vivid sort of image to be created and then we find out it's all fake but then we're reading a short story which we know is all, all fake anyway so there's a lot of interesting um uh play here and when he starts the next big page break section it says first stage taylor said right so his wife's afraid of the stages right oh we don't want to get up to the first stage because that's where the ra- radiation comes in contact, right? Ooh, that's scary. It's uh, it's very interesting to think about how how uh, this all works. And there is one more um, quote. Um, yeah, this is the one I was looking for earlier. I think this is, uh, I guess, the um, the image we have of uh, our own minds looking out at the universe. Uh, through our senses. Um, he does the same thing here. Um, let's see. This is on page 10, I think. That has all been noted. What I want to ask you is this. Our contact with you has been through vid screen only. We must rely on indirect evidence, since none of us goes above. We can only infer what is going on. This is exactly right. You've got the headphones on. You've got the VR glasses on. You've got, uh, I don't know, a smello. Uh, uh, you know, a little desktop printer-style device that shoots smells at your face. I think they made this for some video game. That's a pretty stupid idea. <laughs> it's like it can re- recreate the smell of toast when you're simulating the breakfast table. <laughs> you look around you and you smell the toast and then they spray. Oh, I think there's one, uh, Marissa, you might know about this. 
um, there's a VR one so that when, uh, you shoot like, a, I don't know, a grenade at something, um, it blasts heat at your face. Whoa, I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, it's like, um, it, you put it on your desk and it can shoot, uh, you know, cold or heat depending on, like, if you're outside in the wind. Uh, you know, it's a Arctic blast, uh, or you, uh, grenade goes off and you feel the heat on, flash on your face. You've got this sort of simulation, right? So you've got all this gear on. And then you say, well, the, I don't see reality as it is. I just see reality through my eyes and my ears and my f- skin, um, and, you know, proprioception, you know, how I'm feeling balanced, but I could be anywhere. This whole, um, underground world is actually our world in reality, right? That's the homunculus issue where you, if you, if you look at the, the way, a model of the brain where you say, there's a little man inside our head who's taking in all these data through our eyes, piped into a screen and headphones on his head that are attached to each ear. Um, <laughs> and he controls your body like in, uh, there's a scene in, I think, uh, what's that terrible? Uh, comedy with Will Smith. Um, uh, shit. Yeah, they're making a sequel for it. Uh, Men in Black, right? There's a tiny little alien driving a human. Um, a little homunculus inside your head that is you and making your decisions, bodily decisions for you. Well, the problem is, as soon as you, uh, you've swept all the problems into this idea, you realize that that guy's got a little head too. <laughs> eventually you have to a little driver yeah you've got to face the real issue which is we don't really understand reality except through our perceptions and our perceptions can be wrong and when they come to the idea that they're a little bit skeptical about wh- whether reality is is being truthfully told to them through their senses which are the leddies um, that the correlation of the fact that hey these aren't actually radioactive Let's test that idea again. Um, we're being lied to. We're, we're being lied to about reality. And, and that's fundamentally what this story is about, even though it's a, it's got all this other stuff about, you know, the Cold War. And I think uh, deep down yeah, it is a I really think. interesting science fiction, uh, and science idea. Mm-hmm. Epistemological idea, yeah. So yeah, pretty good story. Yeah. Where are the C class ladies? Uh, I, I'm not sure that there are that many ladies. I mean, think about how much the, all they have to do really is destroy equipment, right? And I guess there's probably some of them taking care of the water mains, as they say. Yeah, we meet the A class, the B class, the D class. Not the C class. Maybe they're in the narrative rooms, like going like, yeah, ah, let's explode yeah. San Francisco. That's right. <laughs> they're the creative ones, maybe. In uh, Penultimate Truth, there, there's some some stuff about, you know, how they make mistakes in um, the propaganda. Oh, there's yeah. no propaganda mistakes in here. They've got, they seem to have got human psychology pretty well, but they do make um, the they forget to bathe the. The uh, representatives in uh, radioactives, right? Mm-hmm. They 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 paint him all up to look like he's battle scarred, but really, he's just not radioactive at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably uh, because not because they if 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 I'm making an apology for this story, 
Uh, probably not because they're uh, just made a mistake, but rather they're they're trying to protect the humans. What if it got out there and leaked to them? Should we should just lie to them, right? Yeah. Because they they really do don't do anything to physically destroy the humans, right? They sure they work them terribly, but that they're doing that to themselves. Mm-hmm. Sort of. That's the true inaction. Allow human beings to come to harm. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's the truncated first law. Hmm. Interesting. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. What were we going to say, Terrence? I was just thinking on your idea that um, that's the way the world is now, the idea that increasingly we're being run by algorithms, that algorithms... Um, that determine um, uh, uh, social media, that determine the stock markets, that determine um, uh, economic uh, uh, policies. It's not literal physical robots, but it's um, uh, algorithms that are supposed to, uh, and big data that are supposed to understand us better than we understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea that... Uh, for example, um, it's well, I don't know if it's the one percent or, or one tenth of the one percent who sell arms um, and um, technology to um, all sides of a conflict, and um, that just serves to occupy uh, people and to make the market flourish. So there's a a homology there as well. Yeah, I, I yeah, that makes the the penultimate truth is I think more on the nose about how our world works. I mean, we, you know, maybe there's an algorithm that that's that's controlling the media to kind of shift our perceptions to some glorious future, but that's not what it is. Obviously, it's it's just about making money. Yeah, it's just about serving the the one percent. It's a, it's, it is the one percent of the one percent, not the. Truth is about. Yeah. It's just about maintaining these feudal estates. There's there's no broader purpose. Kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> don't participate. That's my my thing. Don't try not to participate. Don't be a part of the problem because it'll make you sad. Because uh, you just culture jam it right. Host your own files as best you can. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, 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 this uh, podcast is going to be on an Amazon server, sadly. <laughs> it's the cheapest hosting. What can we do? Yep. Oh, well. We got to get your microphone uh, in a better position or a better microphone, Terrence. I- I'm pretty sure that echoes from you. It's probably okay. uh, just a shitty microphone. What, what, what are you using? It's just my um, uh, uh, laptop uh, microphone. That so would be I'll, probably the issue, yeah. I'll connect in a, an external microphone next time. Yeah, Although you, got, uh, you have an echo for me as well. Yeah. It, it, the most 
good external mics have uh, noise canceling or something like that. Okay, I'll do that next time. Yeah. Uh, what 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 kind you got on hand? Um, I don't know. A really cheap one, but um. Is it USB or is it uh, just regular wired? Um, it's not USB. It goes into the jack. Of yeah, so probably not a condenser mic. That's the 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 ones all the all the podcasters use usually. Evan, are you on uh, headphones or what do you use? No, I just have a snowball. Snowball. That's snowball. that's a good one. And uh, Marissa, yeah, you but it's been giving me trouble. It's been giving me this this kind of feedback. I think it's a it was a power issue when I yeah. got a new computer. It went away. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, US had to do with that. I needed a better USB power supply. I guess. Yeah, the it's, USB power is absolutely needed for a lot of stuff. Um, so I I try to use external uh, powered USBs rather than, and you know if you're going to get a, a computer built like which I do. Um, Always upgrade the power supply so that you can not be underpowered for all the 10,000 USB things you got plugged in. But, uh, what are you using? A head, uh, wired USB headphone mic, Marissa? That's what I am using. It's really on its last legs and I bought one of those, um, snowball mm-hmm, mics as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. But That's what Eric uses I don't know why well. it might be because I'm a girl, but I haven't been able to make it work yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, I've been, uh, yeah, I'm gonna try it again. I haven't really had a lot of time to like mess with it and see what the problem is. Yeah, it, it was fixing it on Skype is sort of the issue is finding where in Skype to uh, adjust it. Like if you have more than one microphone, it doesn't automatically necessarily recognize the best one. Yeah, I've adjusted it all through there and stuff, but it just and it it shows everything is connected to it, but it doesn't pick up any sound, so I don't know what's going on. Well, it's possible it doesn't work. Um, that's possible. I hope that's not true because I've taken so long to figure this out that I probably can't yeah, return it now. not returnable <laughs> after a certain time. Yeah, you, gotta, you should take a half hour to uh, make a bunch of calls and try and absolutely disconnect yep. the other one. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. Figure it out. Um, yeah, Terrence, um, I recommend anything by uh, Blue... Blue Yeti, Blue Snowball. Um, Blue Yeti or Blue Snowball? Yeah, and they, they got a new, um, a new Nano Yeti, which is probably, uh, pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. I got a fancy boom, uh, because, uh, I don't want to have it in my way and bump my papers into it on my desk, but you can just get, a uh, any sort of, but blue, blue Yeti or blue Snowball. Snowball's a little cheaper. Yetis go on sale and uh, are quite good. They're the, sort of the preferred standard for uh, people podcasting. Okay. They're smaller ones, but it's it's very reasonable price. Let's see what the current price is. Uh, 158 Canadian, but I, I got mine for... I, I've bought three of them, and... Uh, I think um, the cheapest was ninety nine bucks Canadian, which is damn cheap. For it's like a solid metal microphone, and it's it gets you as good as basically you can get anywhere. Yes. But those uh, so those blue snow, snowball ones are like less than half that, right? 
Mm, they're not. They're a little cheaper. They're usually about ninety nine. Um, let me, oh, really? Let me look. They're the older... It's sort of their first um, big hit. Um, I think mine is only like $40. I'm looking at... Yeah, so they, they're sort of clearing them out. So they're, they start at 59 Canadian or 60 Canadian and go up to uh, uh, 90. Hmm. Uh, but the thing is, is they're... Uh, I think they're even more prone to um, being hit. So Eric has one, and he bumps into it all the time on the podcast okay. um, because it's got a bigger stand. Um, yeah, and it's Pretty also bulky. not not as close to your face because it's not. Um, so it, it's a kind of an issue. I mean, if oh, if you're yeah. going for it, I would say uh, uh, your best choice is a Yeti, and if you're uh, budget conscious, go for a Snowball. And if you're not budget conscious, go for a Yeti with a compass, blue compass boom. Blue Yeti, compass. That combo is actually a really good deal. Um, I, I bought mine locally, not online, but uh, I think they're like 200 bucks, and you get this giant metal boom um, that basically, uh, I'll just take a picture of it and send it to you guys. Because I can do that. Because I have a pawn. A hand upon. I think I've seen it in your Twitter photos before, huh? Yeah. So what's that one? Uh, I've got a Yeti with a compass, blue compass boom. I bought them separately, but you can buy them as a package. Um, and it's it comes with like uh, a, what, what are those wobble mount things? Uh, shock mount. Mm-hmm. Which you don't really need. I don't need it, but maybe it's good. Let's see here. How do I find the group? Uh, 842 is that us? Maybe. I can't find the group. Zero participants. I don't think that's you. Okay. I can see a blue Yeti Nano Premium mm-hmm. USB microphone Cubano Gold, and it's uh, about a hundred francs, a hundred uh, euros. Is that good? What's <laughs> um, that in American dollars? Hundred euros in American dollars. I don't know. The Nano is plastic, but it's the same guts as a regular. Um, and it's yeah. a little smaller, which might be, you know, if you're a person who has a small place and don't have a lot of desktops space, it might. It's the newest one, but I, I don't know if it's actually cheaper. Ah, here. I finally found the phone call. Where is it? There we go. And uh, the position, even though it's right in my line of sight, um, because I've got two eyes, I can almost see through it and read the screen through the uh, microphone, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so... Mm. 
Blue Compass by itself is 140. That's the boom. And then the uh, Yeti uh, is like 150. But if you buy them together, it's like 200 bucks, which is a very good deal. Usually. Uh, it used to be anyways. But uh, I'm sort of of the philosophy, don't buy anything unless you're going to get the thing that's perfect. <laughs> you know? Yes. Let's see if it says. Mm, there it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, they seem to be selling them separately now, but they used to sell them together, and they probably still do somewhere. Are you an uh, Amazon user? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty hard not to be, right? Mm-hmm. True. That's the unified world again. I, I I basically just refuse, and it, it costs it costs me money. Yeah. Like literally, like I, I'm like fuck. I can only get this from Amazon. Seriously, I go find the company. They said buy it on Amazon. Yeah, because low prices is important to me. But and also one of the things I value most in my life is like time efficiency and mm. just having things done like fast and easy like I can't not use them like they're just the best of that <laughs> yeah that's what I hear um, yeah. we're in so Canada it saves me so much life <laughs> so this is uh, the uh, this is the one I was thinking of it says um, 199 Canadian it includes the boom the uh, shock mount and the microphone uh, for 200 bucks which is a very good deal Mm-hmm. Evan, yours is fine. Mercy, yours is fine. <laughs> I'm pretty I was thinking about Amazon. I think at this point, things like like you think break up YouTube or something, and I don't. I, I think it's, or Amazon. I don't. I don't know. I think a better solution is just to nationalize these things. Yeah, I mean, well, it Amazon can't be nationalized though, service, because it has like, to be for. It has to be global, globalize these things, right? Cause. Yeah, like a utility. It's like a, almost a public utility, especially something like YouTube. Cause I don't want 10 different streaming, you know, YouTubes out there competing any more than I want five different water pipes in my right, house. Right, right, right. Yeah. For water. Mm. Yeah. But, um. Could create a better model for paying content creators too. If, if it was nationalized, I would hope. Uh, my, there's better ways to do all these things. My idea is, like, why, why is everything... Remember, we've still got email on the web, right? And those are the reason we have those things is because it wasn't a particular product owned by a particular company, right? Email is compatible with all other email. I hate email, but at least it's fucking useful and it's compatible with all other email. It's not the case that uh, Twitter is compatible with any other system, right? So if there was a way to uh, basically kill the company by, yeah, as you say, nationalizing, but not really nationalizing by uh, globalizing it so that any company can, uh, you know, post to YouTube. YouTube.com is domain owned by uh, some group that has no international, bo- like, fuck those border things. I... Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I care less about Amazon because it's physical product mailed to me, but I do care about Twitter and I don't care about Facebook. So 
They probably should be probably probably should do the same for Facebook. I don't know. Google, Google's fucking evil. <laughs> They're just <laughs> such a good good at stealing uh, ideas from other companies and making them work. So good for them. Mm. It's it's like, damn. We are definitely in some issues and we got to solve them, but I don't know. I don't know how they're going to get solved. Yeah, remember how long uh, telephone companies had like m- monopoly, and now they're still there, but they're so not important compared to uh, cell phone companies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, landlines still exist. Broadcast television still exists, but they don't have the domination that they used to, and they they're basically irrelevant. M- Netflix is far more likely to be talked about than any particular TV channel, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, just well, dominating conversation. I was talking to my parents, trying to, you know, help them budget cut. I said, you know, you're spending 250 a month or something on your cable internet. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like you, I said, we could get you your internet, your Netflix, and we can give you, we could even throw in Hulu or something. You'd have plenty of TV to watch. Mm-hmm. But you know what it was? It's, it's sports. Yeah. It's, my dad needs sports, so they're basically paying that. Because but you can no get that, age. you can get a lot of that on broadcast Baseball. television, uh, through an antenna. Yeah. I mean, you can't get like, uh, foreign games or whatever, but you, you get whatever's on those broadcast channels. Yeah, like I know how to go and get you know stream a baseball game. I I, I pay MLB the hundred bucks, but I'm out of network, so I can watch Milwaukee games. Mm. You know here, but as soon as I'm back in in Wisconsin, I can. I have to watch it on cable TV or or stream it. But you know my parents aren't going to learn to stream on those sites. You know to get around the blackout. No. So it's once once there's a a way. To, to get beyond the media blackout for sports, you know, I think that's maybe that could be the last leg for cable. I don't think it's ever going to die. I don't, I, n- nothing ever seems to actually die, right? Uh, newspapers are still going to be around in a hundred years. I think they're just going to be co- radically even more weirded than they are now compared yeah. to what they used to be because the people are still ma- manufacturing buggy whips. It's just way fewer companies, right? And, and, and on a much smaller scale. Uh, so it's going to be a boutique, some some sort of weird. Because um, uh, seriously, books uh, are not dying, even though the publishers are dying. Books are not dying, right? Mm-hmm. Paper books are well. Are, books are a great invention. I don't I don't see how they've replaced because the codex no the nope. codex is a great invention because yeah. you can flip through and you can kind of move around. Mm-hmm. Ebooks are essentially still are scrolls. It's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a throwback technology. We're yeah. we're, we're back to the Greek ancient Greek because <laughs> you have to flip, go through all that text to get from one place to the, the next. Mm. So I think that's such a that technology hasn't been replaced by any technology I know of yet. Yeah, it's true. The way you can sort of just flip through, which you know, because I, I you know if you look up footnotes on ebooks, that's a pain in the butt. Huh. On ebooks way. Well, because you're on a, you're on page whatever fourteen. You see a footnote, right? Well, the footnote. No, I mean an endnote. I shouldn't say. Footnotes. Ah, I, I prefer it on ebooks because you can just 
you just tap the little reference number and it takes you straight to the end notes and then you can't always sometimes uh, they haven't gone to the trouble of, yeah. of linking uh, uh, I guess if they're linked but with the yeah, other ones I just put a finger where I'm at and go to the back mm. uh, I've never had that all the ones I've read are linked no, I've got ones that I have to open. Um, I find it on PDF and uh, I open it on my computer screen uh, so that while I'm reading it on my iPad, I can look at the footnotes. Otherwise, which is uh, already too much work. Yeah. But, but then uh, I've got um, not enough room. I've got thousands of books, so now I've, I've, I've got thousands of e-books because uh, otherwise there'll be no room for me. Yeah, that's funny because that's why I started buying all my nonfiction books on ebooks. I thought the endnotes things were so great. <laughs> mm. But it's well, not always the case. Yeah, I haven't had. I haven't well, I guess I'm doing the PDF thing too. When I just oh, that's right. I, I can't read PDFs. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I make ebooks all day. I don't. I don't read them. I just print them out. I don't OCR the ones on my site either. Google does OCR some of them. For some reason, uh, when you if you do a search, you'll find they've OCR'd some of the stuff on my website that's not OCR'd, um, and they're just scans of pages made to be printed, right? But uh, I print them up, like literally. <laughs> that's what I do, and so the big ones, you know, novels. I'll, I won't print that up, but I printed up uh, this story um, just because I can make notes on it and. I, I like the idea of not being on another screen. A piece of paper is not another screen, but it's kind of like another screen, but I can use a pen on it, and it's a physical object that, at the end of the day, I can put in the recycling bin. Um, and yet I can make it come alive again by printing up another copy. Yeah. So what, actually, since we're on the subject of technology brands and stuff, mm-hmm. what kind of printer are you using? Because... I'm so scared to buy a printer because I feel like they're such a scam. They are a scam. So, yeah, what you want to do is buy a brother. Um, yeah. Uh, they're, they might make uh, inkjet. Never, ever, 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 ever buy an inkjet. <laughs> yeah. Never, ever, 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 ever to the nth degree, right? Um, mm-hmm. Brothers uh, are easily uh, replaceable. They're cheap. Their highest um, ratings last time I checked, but they're also um, you can get their toner cartridges uh, from other companies very cheaply. Okay, um, and they, they they last fairly long time. Um, the one I have is probably not uh, still being made, but it doesn't really matter because if you just look at Brother Printer uh, toner, uh, just go to yeah. So I'm seeing one that looks almost exactly the same. Uh, available from Staples for some reason. HLL23702DW. That's just a regular monochrome wireless. Oh, I, I did have some problems with the wireless, so I, I mine's wired. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. Well, now that I got a job, I found a, a very. You just wait till the boss leaves, and then you. you, know, you want. <laughs> I am the boss. <laughs> Oh, it turns out to be, like, uh, very cheap to print. Uh, unless you fuck up and you print, like, 18 black pages, you're, you're, it's, like, less than five cents, uh, for everything, mm-hmm. including the paper, right? Um, okay, that's way good, less, yeah. way less. And there are, uh, color ones, but the problem with color is you're always replacing a different color, because they go out at different speeds, right? 
So you got blue, red, yellow, and black. And so you print a lot of purple like I do, and you lose all your blue and reds, but you still got lots of yellow. Yeah. And then you buy, but you buy, can buy, refill them separately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can re you can redo them. But if you want, just like to if you're just printing up um stuff to read mm-hmm. uh, with no color, just to get a monochrome. Mm-hmm. And a brother's good. <clears throat> um, so I'm gonna ask you about that. Oh yeah. So what's the if it's not inkjet? Is it the laser printer? Is yeah, laser that, is a toner. Laser. The laser hits the toner and blasts yeah. it or whatever and heats up your paper and <laughs> feels really nice when you put it next to your face. <laughs> like the mother That's what I from. Want out uh, of my printer. I am mother. <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend that movie. I think. Um, She's not the monster she's played up to be because I think the humans are the monsters. And uh, sadly, Hilary Swank is the worst thing in the movie. Oh, Um, yeah. She's kind of painful sometimes. I don't know. She's been in some good stuff. But, uh, yeah, she's not my favorite. Yeah. Um, But she's uh, she's not terrible. She's just not... I don't... It's almost like that character doesn't belong there. And she brings a star power that is more noticeable than, you know... The mom, who, who, by the way, I, I was very impressed to find out that the robot is actually a suit. It's not uh, all CG. Oh, cool. It's an actual suit, and there's a guy inside the suit. So the guy is the only male character in the story. Is um, is uh, the, only, uh, the main character, the mother, is a male. Uh, the voice is female, but the guy inside the mother suit is a is a male. Um, and it was a Kiwi uh, show, apparently. Shot in oh, really? uh, Wellington. Oh, cool. I, I thought it might have been. Yeah, Hawaii. Wellington's the place to do non CG weird creatures and puppetry, and that makes sense. It's it's, it's surprisingly uh, good looking for a low budget. You can tell it's low budget uh, from just mm-hmm. the lack of other actors and exterior scenes. It's kind of yeah. I put it in with Ex Machina and Moon. Oh, um, cool. It's not as good as either one of those, but it's pretty good. Definitely worth watching. Even with everything spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> Incentivized. Yeah. So, yeah, one of those brothers will cost you about 100 bucks. Um, oh, yeah, that's fine. And it probably okay, comes maybe I'll toner. look into that. Yeah. I've actually, like... I was saying before, I'm so busy at the moment. I've been like, because I have to do so much reading on the screen, I've been taking painkillers like about oh. 15 minutes after I start work and holding like cold spoons to my eyes to stop like no, my eyes. No, no, no. you got to yeah. get away from screens. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been doing like 12 hours a day. That's why I'm just like, I don't know if I can read anything right now. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in e-ink because mm-hmm. it doesn't do that, right? But... It still feels like a screen somehow. I'm thinking like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it is technically a screen, but it doesn't have that um, light shining in your eyes. Right, yeah. Like staring at the sun, right? Oh, yeah, God, it makes me feel sick. It's too, too much. Yeah. The backlit shit is bad for you. It keeps you awake. Um, all sorts of problems. We've got to get away from the screens as much as we can because um, they're bad. We we already yeah. spend enough time in front of them, right? Yep. 
so much time. It sucks that all my hob- like my work and my hobbies, the things I love to do, are also right. mostly on screens, yeah, like VR, video games and that, yeah. writing. And <laughs> oh, hiking at least is not a screen, as far as you know. Yeah, <laughs> no, hiking's my escape. As far as you know, it's not a screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have the same effect. Apparently, yeah. blue light is a part of the issue too. So maybe you can get a blue light filter. Yeah, I'm gonna get some of those. Um, you can get glasses as well that uh, block out the blue light. There's probably an app that can make your phone take away some of the blue light. Yeah, I already use that stuff as well. Okay. Yeah, that's bad. If you, if your eyes are hurting that much, that's not good. You want to get away from it. Yeah. Because it's not gonna help your eyes, right? I mean, it's not like they get stronger and stronger as you lift more and more heavy weights, right? <laughs> I think they just get worse and worse. Cataracts and eye strain and glasses and oh. Yeah. All right. I got a student coming in second. Uh, when, what, what's next? So I'm down for next week's one. I'm not a hundred percent. I can make it. So oh. keep me as a maybe for that. Um, but still send me the stuff. Cause I I'm have a, to look. <laughs> see what it is. It's, uh, the Ted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the good news on that is that um, uh, you can read whatever you like (laughs) because it's a whole collection. The Mm -hmm. only one that's going to be in the feed uh, in front of the show is a six-minute short story. That's the only one I could get permission for. Okay. Um, And then the rest of them are ones I've read before, and there's two new ones so I'll get on that. And I, did I send you the audiobook for that already? Not yet. Oh, Not shit. Yet. I better do that. Okay. Exhalation. Okay. Somewhere on my desktop. Uh, who else is in for that? Evan, you're for that? I think I said I would. All right. Yeah, you're there. And uh, Terrence, you get your microphone. You can be in on it. <laughs> <laughs> or from Amazon immediately. Yes, uh, I can get it um, uh, delivered Tuesday. It's on uh, Prime. All right. What's the name of the collection? Uh, Exhalation and Other Stories. All right. I've got to find it on my desktop here somewhere. Exhalation. Uh, Exhalation is just fucking amazing, that story. He's so good. Uh, That's the entropy one. That's the... Yeah, but it's also like it's model of science too, which is so cool. Sure. All right, so I'm going to pop this in Marissa's Dropbox. That should be it. And then uh where's Evan? Oh, you don't have a Dropbox, do you? I think I send you everything through public folder. Yeah. All right, I'm going to do that right now. I think Copy Dropbox. Amazon, a new Neil Stevenson novel. Oh God, it's more long stuff. Forty hours of my life gone. So I've got that one. Um, it's really good. The beginning is really good. That's uh, the public link, guys. Um, but it's gonna take a minute to upload. All right. It says can't sync at the moment. I don't know what that means, but. Hey, so Greg Marguerite was your. It's a late friend of yours, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't use I didn't use his version uh, for this uh, because I wanted to change things up. Um, but I've used a bunch of his stuff. I, I was considering it, but I thought, no, oh, we'll mix it up because uh, yeah. we're, I'm gonna. There's still more of his stuff to to use. 
And, uh, yeah, I just listened to um, he did a uh, Rockanon, Rockanon, and he say it. It's like Kayla Gwynn's debut novel. Oh, like really? this really old. Yeah, and I just listened to it. It's really good reading of it. Really, it's amazing. I didn't uh-huh. know. How did that? How did that happen? Greg Mark. Oh, was that for iambic? Marguerite. A uh, Rockanon's world. Yeah, Rockanon's world. That's the one. I'm looking that up now. Acoustic pulp, okay. Rockanons must include. Let me look. Uh, Rockanons world. Oh, it's not coming up. Was that on Audible? Yeah, let me check. Where did I get it from? I think I got it from the library. Wait, it's still on my phone. Not finding it. Details, it's Blackstone. Blackstone? No, that can't be Greg Marguerite. Really? Really? I think it must be somebody else. Can you play a second of it? Mm, It's on my phone, so I don't know how to connect it, but hang on. No, just hold it up to the microphone. Ah, hang on a second. Stefan Rudnicki. Oh, maybe is it Rudnicki? Yeah. Oh, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I mixed up. Yeah. They both got deep, deep male voices, American male voices. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Why isn't it working? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I want to go back to the start. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. But I think you might be right, actually. Maybe it was Rudnicki. Yeah, he's... Um, Does he do the Blackstone? Yeah, he's really... Uh, yeah. Greg Marguerite uh, might have done a, 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 an iambic book, but those are pretty non-mainstream. That That's the only commercial company I could think he would have done one for. They both got deep voices, though. Although Yeah, oh, that must be who it is. Rudnicki's much more uh, famous as a professional narrator. Yeah, I, I I'm not sure that audio drama was very good. The uh, more I think about it, the more I think it sucks. The uh, the the daughter um, and uh, like it's set uh, 16 years in the future for no reason. I don't understand why the changes were made. It's interesting. It's kind of I like seeing when people take a story and do that. Like, but it kind of felt more like fan fiction. Yeah, it didn't. It, it wasn't very faithful. Like, there's another one, um, and I didn't. I didn't bring it up because it's not really related other than he mentions it. Um, a Philip K. Dick interview in 1976, uh, he talks about the two adaptations for, of, uh, from Galaxy Stories, um, as on X minus one. One was, uh, this one and the other one was for Colony. And that adaptation is actually, I think, uh, pretty damn good. Whereas this one, I think, uh, just why, why change? Why make these changes? That 18 years versus, uh, 16 years versus, cause the, uh, so that the daughter could grow up inside the, the place and, mm. I guess, but why have the daughter there to begin with? He has to have someone to talk to, right? <laughs> In audio, yeah. you have to have somebody to talk to, but it changes the dynamic. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's any change is a change, and usually it should be for a reason. Uh, 
And that's why I think like thinking about what's going on in I Am Mother is, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's the relationship uh, we have to pets is not the kind of relationship we would tolerate with other humans. If I treat you like my pet, I love you, but I'll kill you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because that's just how uh, we should relate to each other. <laughs> I love you, but if you, uh, if you bite me um, and you bite other people, you're, you're gone. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That's just how it has to be. And, and a lot of people are not willing to accept that. My niece, when my mom put down one of her dogs because it was biting people, including me, um, and other and mom, dogs right? and damaging people. Yeah, I mean, just fucking up. Yeah, it really damaged her hand. Like, one of her digits doesn't fold anymore, you know? Um, my niece is like, thought this was unforgivable. Wow. And she, she loves animals. She wants to be a vet. She does not understand the world and how hard it is, right? Yeah. That's like, you know what vets do all day long, right? Yeah. As a vet, you're going to have to make that decision a lot and people are going to make that decision for you. Oh my God. That's all you do basically is you yeah. heal and you kill. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of killing because people don't have the money to spend on you know, putting their pets through like massive oh, surgeries. Jesus and- Christ. Of course. That's the main thing, right? Cause if, mm-hmm. if we, uh, that's the reality. If we had unlimited funds, we could all send our dogs up to farms upstate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all our problem dogs, but you, we, we don't have unlimited money. And because of that, and we don't have unlimited healthcare for our pets. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm all for yeah. unlimited healthcare for humans, but not for pets. Jesus Yeah. I Christ. left a cat of mine with a, some fat, uh, the parents of my boyfriend when I left New Zealand and he had a really, you know, terrible car accident that lost, mo- you know, knocked off half his jaw kind of thing. And Fuck. they, they had tons of money. So they paid for like all the reconstructive surgery and rebuilt him and he lived a really long life. And I was like, wow. Cause if he'd been my cat yeah. when I was like 20 something, he wouldn't have, you know, it just comes down to money. Like he yeah. would have been gone. And, pro- and money's his priority that you're not giving to other things. And what can we do? That's just yeah. You never do that for your kid, or <laughs> well, uh, the thing is, is I, I was thinking about how interesting I am mother is in terms of they're always bringing up uh, the abortion stuff in uh, in the states, you know, for political purposes. But um, it, it, it's essentially about infanticide, part of it. And I'm like, I have no problem with that in some circumstances because some circumstances are really fucking harsh, right? Really fucking harsh. Sometimes people need to kill a child to save the other children. Um, it has happened in history. And if you're not willing to make certain decisions, um, then you're lying to yourself. If you say you're not willing to, you know, I would never do that, um, then you really don't understand the situation because those are exactly the sorts of, you know, it's a Sophie's Choice, right? That movie. That's the whole point. Is you, you, you are investing money, uh, not just money, your blood, your milk, all this stuff into your child, and you have two of them. One of them is grown up, and the other one's uh, younger and a little sick. What are you gonna do? Make a choice. You can take one child. Fucking terrible, mm-hmm. right? But if you say no, I would never put myself in that situation. Well, guess what? <laughs> she didn't want to be put in that situation either. Yeah, yeah, no one, no one does that. <laughs> right? So nobody says, oh yeah, I definitely want to. I'm going to put myself in that situation. Oh my God. Right? 
So I, I try to avoid putting myself in situations where I have to make hard moral choices because I don't want to feel bad. But I, I definitely think I will feel bad because I will make those hard moral choices because you can't not. That's the whole lesson, right? Is you can't not make those hard moral choices. You have to live with your consequences of the shit you did, mm-hmm. or die, or die with because you didn't. Wow. Okay, my student should be here, but he's not. <laughs> Okay, so I have to go anyhow. So uh, goodbye. Thanks. Um, nice talking to you. Yes. And, yeah, nice to meet you, Terrence. Read as much of Exhalation as I can. Yeah, oh, it should be very easy. Very, very I've, easy. I've read most of it already. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll like it. I mean, okay. new stuff. So new stories will be enough. Uh, you read what you want, Evan. You, you'll probably... Uh, I got, I got Jerusalem. <laughs> well, you'll be done that in the three or four days, I think. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm trying to do about 100 pages a day to finish up. To finish for your podcast, apparently. 100 pages. No, I'm not. He's not an American, so screw him. Oh, wow. He's... He's definitely uh, that, that's um I want to I did do Tocqueville. Stuff. That's like a like a, there's a like a loophole uh-huh. with Tocqueville. Hey, hasn't Alan visited the America. United States? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, because it's published by the Library of America. That's oh, what I, I just it, but <laughs> at Jerusalem, uh, if there's a reasonable deadline, like in a year or two, uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I would. I'm gonna wait. I would, for, but I do think I'm gonna have to read this again. I'm gonna wait for Evan to finish it, and then <laughs> when he tells me all the parts I need to know, I'm gonna probably say no, anyways, because yeah, Jesus I, I, Christ, I, it's so far. I reckon. I, I, I kind of reckon it's not gonna be worth the effort, but mm. I, the, the the moments are great. I think there's a lot of great stuff in there, and some of these characters are really compelling. I just don't see how it's all fitting together yet. Hopefully, it will. Mm. There's this great, like, drunk, out-of-work poet, and there's, like, a two-hour chapter all about him just kind of walking around like, like, bloom. It's, it's very Ulysses-like. And then, you know, by the end of the day, he decides to pick up the pencil again. It's, it's kind of nice. Okay, bye-bye. 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 All right, see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.